let's try to let's try to pick up where we were and then we're going to go into Helene. So I know, Adam, you had a question you wanted to raise. So, Adam, I'm going to recognize you. Um, welcome, Adam. I'm sorry about the uh, awkward uh, technical issue that we had. So, Adam, welcome. What's on your mind? Adam? Thanks a lot. Yeah. I'm sorry that Amy's not here. I'm one of her fans. Uh, Adam Atlas. I've been a lawyer in crypto since 2013. Just three little things. Concerning the miners, uh, Carol and Amy were giving some kind of sophisticated descriptions of what they do. But I, I think it's a lot simpler than that. I think they're doing one of two things. They are, they're, they're basically buying crypto at a discount. And uh, that discount is kind of evaporating right now because of the increase uh, energy cost and the, the decrease in uh, the price of crypto. The, the second point I wanted to make is, is, is about Tether and the various regulators that uh, ought to be doing something about it. And one of the regulators, I just do not understand their position on Tether, is New York DFS. You have uh, companies like uh, Circle who run uh, uh, stable coins who are getting licensed by New York DFS. Why is New York DFS not demanding that Tether pick up a bit license? That completely stumps me. And the final thing I wanted to mention is, uh, and this is in response to something you said earlier, George, you know, why, why is Tether, why do people still believe in Tether? And I, I think there's a kind of collective delusion that the entire, that all the participants in the marketplace believe in. And um, deep down, they probably know Tether is simply not worth the peg. It, it holds itself out as, but they would much rather believe <laughs> that Tether is worth something to preserve their own capital. Back to you, George. Adam, thanks for that. Really appreciate it. Agreed most all that. Um, but, you know, the problem is, and sure, I'll get to you in one second. The problem is we need to have, and Kay will get to you too. The problem is we need to have, and, and Helene, we want you to start talking in a minute. The problem is we need to have some integrity in the markets. And I totally get there if there are unsafe characters running around Asia, running drugs, guns, money laundering, whatever, they, and they don't have access to regular banking, they're willing to 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 traffic in some dodgy, solution of the second best like tether but we can't have that i mean think about the main man my question to you because I, I see from your background you're pretty knowledgeable in this area you know if some poor schmo uh counterfeits ten thousand dollars of of, 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 of of currency he'll wind up on the front page of the new york post with handcuffed and paper bag over his head and and and, and a da will throw the book at him here you have counterfeiting on the biggest scale ever this is bigger than Madoff and by the way Shrub right at least in the case of Madoff most of the money was recovered this is tens and tens of billions of dollars and nothing is being done Adam how do you explain that I I, I'm stumped I'm absolutely with you Uh, and, and as I was saying earlier I am dumbfounded by the inaction of New York DFS on Tether. Uh, you know, you, 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 you can't hold, you, you can't do anything in crypto in New York without a bid license. So where's the cease and desist from New York DFS versus Tether? I don't know. Now, my point earlier about why people who hold Tether continue to believe in it is there, that their mercantile self-interest depends on that. I'm not saying it's a good thing. I'm absolutely with you, George. I think 
the book should be thrown at uh, any stable coin that can't show audited statements for its assets. 100%. Thanks for that. And please stay up there because I'm sure we're going to have more discussion around this. I want to go to Shrub and then KFAB and then we're going to have Helene Meisler. So Shrub, let's keep it tight because I want to get on to Helene. We'll yeah, sure. So I've had this discussion on I've had this discussion on Tether with a lot of crypto guys, and the, the answer I'm getting back is that it's just a little bit of a fraud. It's not a complete fraud. Oh, so it's just because, a little bit Yeah, of a fraud. it's just I, a little bit I, of a fraud, George. So it's like just a little bit pregnant kind of thing. So, so, so yeah, basically... So it's rough. <laughs> just like we're going to have a soft-ish landing, this is kind yeah, of like soft a landing. Exactly, drug. yeah. Okay. Exactly. Transitory inflation, soft landing, and, the, and crypto is just a little bit of a fraud. So I guess because everything is a fraud in crypto, you know, Tether being a little bit of a fraud is okay. But the argument they were saying is, well, you know, if... It can go to 90 cents on the dollar because it's only a fraud for, you know, it's only like 10 cents on the dollar missing. And my answer is because we've seen how this thing happens in 08 and with other funds, actually it's happening with Tiger right now is, I'll, I'll, I'll walk you through how this, this whole thing blows up. So you start with say 100 billion and say 10 billion is missing and it's uh, somewhere in the Bahamas and China and whatever. So 90 cents on the dollar is there, 10 cents is missing. But say there's like a crypto winter like now and 50 billion leaves the system and 50 billion tether is redeemed. That 10 cents on the dollar fraud becomes 20 cents on the dollar fraud. And then if this continues and there's more redemptions, the 20 cents becomes 50 cents, 60 cents. And suddenly this thing is going to zero. So this thing about it's just a little bit of fraud is complete nonsense. That's not how the world works. You're basically getting a zero cent on the dollar recovery at the end of this. 100% shrub. Uh, let, let's move on because I want to get to Helene. So, so KFAB, uh, you have a shot at it, and then we're going to go to Helene. Yeah, real quick, other than just the idea of the normal fraud cycle, which I, I see Mr. Chanos is in the audience, So, uh, and there are certain people like Miss Meisler and Mr. Chanos who I, I use those uh, re references to uh, out of respect. Um you know, it could just be bureaucratic, the usual, they're more mortician than cop issue. If I was going to come up with kind of a more conspiratorial narrative, you know, they're moving towards a central bank digital currency. Um, you know, is it in the interest of the federal government to have these things blow up in a disaster in a sense uh, so that they can kind of ride to the rescue as the mortician and argue, oh boy, we're coming out with the proper legit um, you know, payment system using this sort of technology, not that it's going to be the same, um, but that would be kind of a narrative that I could, I could dream up as far as why they might be, you know, let's call it slow to intervene. It's just mind boggling that this is being allowed to occur. Uh, and again, I see our, our, our good friend, Mr. Chenis is in the audience, Jim, you're always welcome to come up to speak on this or any of the other disasters that are in progress right now. There's just so little time and so many disasters. So, um, Always, always happy to, uh, to 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 learn from you and hear your wisdom, Jim. So anytime, please weigh in. Okay, so now let's go to our second speaker today, Ms. Meisler. How are you, Helene? Please unmute yourself. I think she disappeared on me just now. Hmm, she chickened out. Oh, Helene, I think you you hit the wrong button. You got to get back up. Oops, you got to get back up here. Invite to speak. Helene, please accept the, the the speaking invitation. I think in your haste to uh, in your haste to uh, unmute yourself, you hit the okay. Put I'm me here. back. And you, oh, there you go. 
Helene, how are you, dear? How are Let you, Helene? Let me just say, I am not a very good technology person, as you can tell. And then I'm listening to this whole crypto thing and thinking it's also a good thing I'm not an early adopter because I don't even understand half of it. <laughs> well, I'm not sure everybody else up here just Well, I take that back. The people in the first two rows that spoke on this issue definitely know what they're talking about. There's no question there. Um, and it's, you know, when, when, when it speaks, it's sort of like, it's also an element of muscle, muscle memory pattern recognition, you know, if it looks like a fraud, quacks like a fraud, smells like a fraud, sounds like a fraud, it's a fraud. And what about if it's um, just, what was that comment? A little bit of a fraud? Yeah, a little bit of a fraud, just like you're a little bit pregnant, Helene. You're, 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 pre you're, 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 it's fraud -ish. It's not fraud, it's fraud -ish. I can't. I, it's beyond me. As, as I've, I've often said, since I've heard about crypto, I can find a million ways to lose money in stocks. I don't need to get involved in crypto. <laughs> I, All right, Helene, it's great to have you in here. I've been, I've, I've been, I've been stalking you, as you know, we've, we, even though we've kind of known each other for ages, we only first met a couple months ago back at the CMT conference in D.C. at the end of April. And I'm so happy that you uh, that, that they're able to find your way to the room this morning. This is awesome. So, Helene, um, there's a lot going on. You and I were, you know, I read your stuff on, on, on real money, et cetera, et cetera. So let's let's just keep this light and easy. Um Just a stream of consciousness. Like, you know, there, there's so much going on. I'm sick of reading about sentiment, depressed sentiment. I'm sick of reading about people say, well, it's already discounted, this, that, and everything else. I mean, if I just put my narratives aside and, 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 and turn my brain off, and I just look at the charts and trade what you see, not what you think, everything's making lower highs and lower lows. It's ugly. It's so, this, and, and, so that's one. And, and, I, and I originally, the original title of this room this morning was was something from Marty Zweig, and I, I got to pull out his old trading rules. The other one that I love is it was just don't fight the Fed. Okay, right. Well, no way up, don't fight the Fed. So all the bulls, all of a sudden they forgot about that. Don't fight the Fed. The Fed wants the market to go down. So I look at it. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna set it up for you. The market acts horribly. The technicals look awful. Mm -hmm. Earnings estimates are about to to roll over big time. The economy is mm -hmm. about to go into a recession. Mm -hmm. The public bought, you know, trillion two of equities last year. Hasn't sold a goddamn thing. Um, the well, that's not true. There were outflows last week. In the bigger scheme of things, okay. I mean, right. I mean, I mean, if Agreed. you add up, if you if you look at cumulative outflows, and, and by the way, be careful because right to your immediate right shrub, we've got the resident flow expert. But if you look at total outflows this year, it's like I don't know, hundred hundred billion. That compares like a trillion to last year or thereabouts. Hedge funds, yes, they've de-risked. But I'm sick of reading all this prime brokerage garbage data, which shows them they z-score the exposures off a three or four year basis, as if like that's some normal period of time in history. And they say, well, you know, they're only in the fifth percentile that long. Yeah, but when you when you zoom out, as our Bitcoin maxi friends would say, and you compare it to a longer time period, you know, compare their exposures to where they were back in 2012, 2013. I mean, if 45 percent net long, if 45 percent net long is flat, well, okay, fine. So. People are talking bearishly, but they're you got a bunch of fully invested bears. So I look at it and I'm like, it's not what could possibly go wrong. It's like what could possibly go right. And I've been saying Adam Finan in these rooms for months. Stocks represent return free risk. Again, stocks represent return free risk. You heard me say that in Washington. So so with that, Helene, uh, talk to me. What am I got? What, am I too bearish? Am I not bearish enough? What's going on, Helene? Well, I think you're a little bit of both. Um 
first of all, most very few markets come down all at once. They come down in layers. Uh, you know, go back to the only market that really sort of came down very similar to this market so far was the early 70s, um, where you just basically had no bear market bounces at all. Um, this one we've had, you know, you had the March bounce, you had the May bounce. Um, I think you can get another bounce this week. Um, but in general, the bounces in, even in the dot-com bust and in 07, 08, those bounces lasted. I mean, people seem to forget that off that JP Morgan, not JP Morgan, um, off the Bear Stearns low in March of 2008, we rallied, I think, 10 or 12% in the S&P. And it took months to get that up there. And people were feeling a lot better by the spring of 08. Not, I mean, obviously not everybody, but, but it certainly was enough of a rally to, to relieve the anxiety. Um, and we just haven't even had anything like that. Uh, you've had short term where people sort of um, get a little bit more complacent is, is how I, I have termed it. Like, you know, for example, we had a, a terrific rally off that May low lasted five, six, seven, eight days, whatever it was. Um, and instead of getting bullish, you just get the bears bearish. And that seems to be the pattern in this market, which is very different than what most of us have experienced because I'm old, but I certainly wasn't trading in the early 70s. So I'm only looking at charts from then. Um, I so, also... So, and yeah, I, I Helene, Helene, Helene. Yeah. So Helene, this is Justin. <laughs> what would Ju what would Justin be saying about no seriously? Channel your inner Justin for a second. Out of body experience, okay? So you're not responsible for what you're about to say. What would Justin be saying right now? First of all, he'd be a lot meaner than I was because that was sort of his nature. But um Justin would be talking about all the tops. I mean, you know, I, I when I did my Saturday chart fest today, I think I think that was a Justin line where he called the market a circus and we were under the big top. Um, and I mean, you know, for for you to have that, you, I mean, everybody wants to know I, these questions on TV just kill me. Are we at are we at the low? Well, first of all. Good luck, because I didn't know we were at the high when we were at the high. And so I don't know how I'll know that we're at the low when we're at the low. And I on, will only know it in hindsight. But one thing I do know is that at, at a good low, you have bases that have been built in stocks. And I don't have any charts that have bases, not one. And you lost energy this week. You're in the process of losing the ag stocks, and nobody's even talking about those. Um, I just don't know where you even have a base. And so Justin would say there are no bases. There are only tops. So, Helene, when a market can't rally when it's, quote, unquote, supposed to rally, again, I'm leading the witness here. You know where I'm going with this. But for everybody in the room, I mean, it's like my grandpa was. I only ask questions you already know the answer to. When a, mar when a market won't rally when it's, quote, unquote, supposed to rally, mm -hmm. how, how does that speak to you? Well, it's it's a sign of weakness, but but you want you want a discussion about the market. But I think one of the things that people 
have sort of left behind now is everybody was hiding out in energy. And that changed this week in a big way. And I think that's what the difference is from this past week is they were hiding out in energy and they still like energy. It's like, oh, well, it was terrible. You know, but Exxon is yielding 4%. Well, hello, Exxon was yielding more than 4% when it was $40 and nobody wanted it. Um, and, and so to me, I think the story really is energy. And Helene, Helene, Helene you, 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 yet again, you prove why I have a crush on you. And, <laughs> and, and, and you weren't in this room last weekend, but Shrub, if you're listening, the, the gentleman right next to you, so Shrub, because I'm going to let Shrub talk about our discussion last weekend on energy. Shrub, are you there? Shrub, can you mute yourself? Yeah, yeah, I'm here. I'm here. Yeah, Shrub, so, Shrub. <laughs> so, so Shrub, Shrub can, you, can you just summarize? What we, you're probably laughing at yourself sick. So, Shrub, maybe just, maybe just sort of summarize what our thoughts were last weekend. Uh, well, last week, actually, we were, we were on the same page. And, uh, you know, I summarized it on a tweet that it felt like we had all the energy tourists in. And it felt, uh, yeah. it felt like a very crowded space with uh, a religion. So whenever you have a religion, it kind of means that we're approaching uh, an overbought or a correction level. Well, um, you forgot Barron's put energy on the cover. Well, you had Barron's. You had, uh, uh, yeah, you had quite a few counter indicators, I think, George. Don't you think? <laughs> I don't care. Helene, Helene, he's not affiliated with the organization for whom you're writing more, so I can say it. Okay, uh, the gentleman who's got the investing club on CNBC, but I don't want to name names, okay? He was calling out energy is the only thing you could buy this past week. I know, I you know. I mean, but he was, in fairness, he wasn't alone. I mean, I even tweeted out, oh, my God, breathless on energy. Everybody was just, oh, look at it. And, and, and quite frankly, you had, I, I followed the Daily Sentiment Indicator. I think the, the DSI on um, on. Um, uh, oil itself was 93 and i think on gasoline was 95 i mean yeah you that that's like shorting a five dollar stock who does that <laughs> I don't get it i mean really yeah it can go to zero but what's your point <laughs> all right so so helene stay with us for a second right so let's say shrub you and i all agree energy is gonna go in for Arrest, not to be too. I mean, it could go to ninety bucks, whatever. Okay, so so crude's flat to down, right? And 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 so Helene, I'll, and Shrub, maybe you want to take a stab at this, or Helene. So Helene, um, the 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 converse or the inverse of energy has been Kathy Wood and all the other craps. So energy's on the roof, she's mm. in the toilet, right? So mm-hmm. we saw this dreck, and I think everyone's Yiddish in this room is good enough to know what that means. We saw this dreck have a dead cap bounce yet again late in the week, so. What's the mm. chance to screw everybody up that we get the energy selling off? And if you're short, it's like you talk about shorting the five dollar stock. You know, maybe shorting ARC at thirty six isn't the brightest thing in the world. Maybe you can go to forty six. All right. So what's the chance? Mm-hmm. It's like a seesaw. You know, energy was up. Kathy was down. Now energy is going to go down. Kathy's going to go up. So like, what are you the odds? Look at that biotech. We ca- biotech hasn't made yeah. a new low in like a month or so. Right. Right. So you know, okay. you, in other words, so to go back to your your story about the market it's in many ways the market has been the giant group rotation in that we we started spitting out the arc stuff 18 months ago and and you know that was peak speculation in my view you've heard me say this before but for those who haven't i think the first quarter 
of 2000 of 2021 was peak speculation, peak new highs, peak SPACs. I, I, I mean, I could go on. Maybe it was peak crypto. I don't even look at crypto, but maybe it was. It was just peak everything. It was everywhere you look. I mean, NASDAQ has never before had over 700 stocks making new highs, and you had over 700 stocks making new highs. And, and nothing from those 700 highs ever got back there again. You came down in the spring, you rallied, and after that, every single rally was a lower high and all that Kathy Wood stuff. And so you have been, you've had a whole swath of the market that's been in the bear market for a, over a year. I know nobody likes to talk about that. Everybody says, oh, the bear market. No, no, Helene, Helene, November. Helene, but the Helene, bear market Helene, started Helene, over a year ago. No, Helene, Helene, Helene. What do you mean nobody likes to talk about that? You've been in the wrong rooms. You have found no. your place here. Okay? We love to talk about that. Okay? Any, all, right. all right. So, all right. So, so, okay, so let okay, me just all say, right. all you, so, so if you if you even want to take a look and, and think the decline now is like the early 70s and and I haven't done a lot of work on this I'm going to do that this weekend but if you do then you would have to say that rally last year was like the nifty 50 that peaked in January 73 because that last rally in the in the 70s um was just you know, as they call, as we call it, the Nifty Fifty. Last year was all—I I hate to just say a handful, but it really, really was pretty pathetic in terms of being widespread because energy really hadn't even started to take off. Energy only kind of started to bottom last fall. Um, so again, I just think it, it's this giant group rotation. So to go back to you, nobody is living anymore in the biotech and the Kathy Wood and the, and the IGV names, and nobody's there anymore. They may be short. Um, I don't even know if that's the case. They're just sort of, I, I commented the other day that uh, two months ago, everybody on my Twitter feed was, look at ARC, look at ARC. Look. Nobody even talks about ARC anymore. And and they don't even, CNBC doesn't even deem to have Kathy Wood on anymore. My God, she used to be on like once a week. And so with energy, my God, let's just love on energy. And before we, let's just put energy aside. Let's talk about the ag stock. Because nobody's even talking about how those fertilizer stocks are just breaking down now. Bungie is down, I don't know, 20% already? It, nobody even talked about them because they're not as broad a scope as energy. But Alcoa is down 50%. Uh, CX is down uh, 30 or 40%. I mean, I, I don't know how you could love commodities here. So, so, so Helene, so <laughs> let's just say shrubs bearish. Let's just say hypothetically I'm bearish or Cantor's bearish, right? And we want to know between now and the end of the year, next six months, okay, what do you, and, and maybe you think, well, energy's, you know, energy's going to, maybe it's energy right now because it's been so overbought. I don't know. But if I said to you, Helene, we want to put together a market neutral strategy, all right, between now and the end of the year, I'm not interested in picks, not this week, next week, and they don't have to give us individual mm. names, but sort of group wise, we're trying to help. I think there's like a thousand people in this room. Just to try to help the average, there's 1,100 people in this room, Helene. Sell semiconductors. You, you have a lot of friends. So, Helene, and again, we don't have to get into individual names, but sort of like group-wise, sector-wise, factor-wise, 
what would you want to be short and what would you want to be long? If you could put like two or three, two or three groups or sectors on, on either side, you do want to have what semis on the short side? Is that, I that definitely, I, because to me, the semis have only recently broken down and um, I'm, I'm only hoping that they rally some. So, you know, you could short some. Um, and, and what I think is interesting from this past week is that everybody was so focused on the breakdown in energy that they've actually taken their eye off the semiconductor stock, which okay. are all breaking down fresh. Not right. all of them, a lot of them. Right, sorry, so semis are garbage. Now, now energy, do you think this is a positive? I mean, you may say, well, I don't want to answer that question. All I know is they're right here, right now. Energy, do you think it's just a positive refreshers or do you think this could become something bigger? Uh, for now, I think it's something bigger. At least if I had to say over the next one to three months, I'm not a fan of energy. You know, I'd be hysterical about that because we, 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 and again, it's the same thing you were talking before about Exxon with 4% dividend yield. And and don't get me wrong. I mean, I was all in on energy up until like a month or two ago, but we had people in here saying, well, you know, this stock's on two times cash flow on three times cash flow. Well, you know, when they, when they come to take, when they come to come, come to raid the uh, house, they take the piano player as well. I mean, two times cash flow is not going to save you as spot oil is going down and the whole sector is for sale. So our energy, you don't like semis, you don't like. I take you ag you don't like. Now let me ask you this: to the extent you like anything, is it, <laughs> is it in relative terms, or is it, or is it, or is it, or is it actual absolute long? Is there anything you would own long outright right here? Um. Oh, that's a good. You know what? For for a trade, I suspect that you can own the big cap tech stocks for a trade, like the Qs, the Q stuff. Helene, that feels dirty to me. You want to know why? I'm going to tell you why. Because you had Amazon, everybody was like loving it when it was splitting and it was terrible. And now it's come back down. You had the article in the Wall Street Journal the other day. Everybody's pissing on Amazon. Stock hasn't made a new low. So it probably needs a little rally. Probably tells you people to short it. Um, Apple. Apple has had downgrades this past week it acts terribly but why isn't it broken like so many other stocks helene you're you're you need patience you need patience i know that's why i just said for a short-term trade that's where i would go because if just think about it for a minute if i'm right and we can get a rally this week i mean fingers crossed and we can get a rally this week you know it's the end of the quarter we're coming into what are people going to glom on to if if their exposure is low and they need to participate because my god they're rallying where are they going they're going to be index movers they're going to microsoft they're going to google they're going all right to all right, so, okay, all right. So, so you're playing all right fair enough okay so okay, i'm running that's off. my other point and that's why i really hope that we get a rally in the semis so you can sell them so you, you don't go. see you don't have any investment longs you got trading longs Right. Right now? Okay. Yeah. There, because right. let me go back. You asked me my channel, my inner my inner justice. There are no bases. Got it. All right. I, mean, I wanna do I wanna do shrub for a follow up and then Cantro and then Newman. Shrub? Uh, no, just to follow up on the energy comment from last week. So if you remember, the energy was at the highs last week and the fertilizers were already down like thirty percent. And I actually said that I'd rather be in the fertilizers. And you said very wisely, well, if you look at the fertilizers, how they're down 30%, why would an energy fall? You know, why, why would an energy follow? So 
everyone stopped uh, talking about the fertilizers a few weeks ago and they had that drop and now we're kind of like maybe they were the leading to the energy um so you know they're testing now can can i interrupt for a second sure sure you you should take a look at the chart of wheat because that hasn't fallen yet so wheat falls people will go oh my god Anyway, yeah. Go on. So yeah, a lot of a lot of these names are now, now on long term uh, support. So for my taste, because I, I have a bit of a view on the on the space for the next six months, I'm kind of okay to hang in there for another for a while longer. Uh, although I'm small down from wherever I was, so it doesn't matter. But the second point I want to make is um, I was actually long biotech XBI uh, mm-hmm. because I was feeling it. I was looking at basing. Um, and then I run the correlation with ARC, and it's like one-to-one. <laughs> so, uh, so yeah. I got out on the bounce. <laughs> but it's really just a one-to-one correlation, which is quite impressive. Thanks for that, Shrub. Cantro, good to see you. What's up, Cantro? Hey, uh, I, I would just kind of echo uh, the thoughts uh, around NASDAQ. I can't see the market going up unless there's some kind of lower inflation fears, you know, or some of the, whatever, and any good news on in the inflation front, whether it's about the war, oil coming down or whatever. And, you know, that's, that's why the markets are down the most year to date. And, you know, over the last month, growth in value at the indices, which, you know, are skewed by sectors and capitalization biases, but they, they, they have not, you know, growth has not gotten crushed in the last month. And I think that goes to the, the point, and, you know, and bond yields have gone up even higher and so that spread between growth and value is not increased because now we're beginning to see the economy fall apart as a result of that. So, you know, if there's any upside in the market here, I think you've got to buy something that's, you know, been punished because of higher rates. And if there's downside from here, whether it's rates going up, oil going up, or anything else going down from an economic perspective, at this point, the pain ahead is, is mostly in value cyclical stocks. So, you know, we, we've been kind of talking about this, teasing this around for the last month or so. Um, I'm not bullish really on, on a lot, but if there's any relief rally, it's going to be beta junk and growth that works because that's what's down the most. And that's what would like, you know, again, making the market go up here. It's not higher rates or higher oil. It's, it's the opposite. So it's not energy. To your point, Cantro, it, it, let's say Helene's right. And let's say oil does come off. So I can imagine the sort of, um, Captain Obvious first order thinking soundbite CNBC stockbroker economics. Oh, oil's down. Really, when you break it down, the whole inflation problem in rates is all because of energy, and that energy's down. We kill the energy dragon. Forget about the long-term supply problems there. I'm just talking about the narrative, right? And, and and the markets will do as much as they can to confound as many people as possible all the time. We know that. So what? How? What, I don't think it, would, it wouldn't. Sounds like it wouldn't really surprise you. If in that context, if you get energy coming off, as Helena is suggesting, and you get a bounce in the other stuff, it's the opposite of energy. I mean, it could screw people up because, look, the last year, one has killed it by being long energy and short Kathy. Well, yep. maybe it's time you got to get back some of those profits. So what, what would you what would you say to that scenario? Yeah, I mean, George, you got to admit that, I mean, I would think you would say, you know, the, the best spread performance in that trade is behind us, right? 100%. No? Well, for, for right here, right now, yes, 100%. Yeah. So, you know, just trying to managing core positions, core ideas. 
Uh, yeah, I think I, I think you got to kind of neutralize that. I, I'd say, you know, to answer your question that Helene mentioned, you know, what's favorite longs and shorts? I'd say from here, as this you know becomes less about inflation and rates and more about the economy, things that correlate with rising credit spreads, BAA spreads, or more importantly, down the road, rising unemployment claims. That is going to be the next major economic shoe to drop. It's slowly starting. It's going to happen slowly, then happen quickly. And then with regards to oil, to me, like that, that's when we start seeing claims rise, that's when oil usually is going down sharply. Uh, and, you know, there's not, a lot of, uh, there's not a lot of examples we can look to. Like in 08, you know, it's hard to draw a parallel to today. Um, but in 2000, if you want to use that as one uh, analogy, oil finally started going down in December of 2000. And that's exactly when claims, unemployment claims, started going up. That was basically the beginning signs of the recession uh, when claims started going up. So that's what you know, that's what I'm watching closely. And to me, that's going to be a game changer. But from between now and then, uh, yeah, lower inflation, you know, whatever it is that could create a relief rally here, um, I think it would be benefit those that are, you know, the growth stocks that are down the most as a right. trade. That's that's great, Cancho. Helene, I want to come back to you. I'll go to Newman. Helene, um, this is kind of like a professional type of conversation here that we're having. We're all market animals. We're, we're, you're changing your opinion. You know, Cantor's changing his opinion, Shrub, you know, daily, weekly, whatever. But for the average person in the room, Helene, who's at home, as mm. uh, Kramer would say, the home gamers out there, whatever, what would you tell them? Because one of the things I have a real problem with, I struggle with, and we're talking about sentiment. I mean, amongst the retail crowd, the, the public, they're just, they, they've been so conditioned to stay in. That's the old line about, you know, adage, how do you cook a frog, turn the, turn the temperature up slowly. And they don't want to jump out. And the reasons they give you are there, A, stocks for the long term. Jeremy Siegel, please call your office. Or B, if I sell, then it creates another problem. I got to figure out when to get back in. Or the next one, if I sell, I'm going to have to pay taxes. That presumes they have any gains. They don't have any gains now. At least that problem goes away. But the last one, and my favorite one, is if I sell, it's going to ruin my asset allocation decision. I'm like, holy okay. So, so to the average person at home, lead, you know, not you know, for for a good, for, you know, your best friend's mother, okay, or wait, but for your best friend on a personal level. What would you tell them? I keep telling people stocks are return for your risk. Get out of Dodge, you know, just go on vacation. Like, just get the hell out, you know. What would you tell the average investor, Helene? Raise cash. So that then leads to the next question. If you had to hallucinate a little bit about where do you think the market could be, I'm not going to hold you to exact levels. Mm -hmm. But, you know, Cantro is very eloquent in going through his I – and mean, he is the best strategist in the street – uh, explaining why, you know, I mean, we may have seen a low, but not the low. We're going significantly lower. And, and in my delusional rants, I also believe the same thing. I, I happen to think the people just things are, but that's another story. Um, like, where do you think, if you had to guess, looking at one of the soundbite indices, be it the S&P, the Qs, NASDAQ, whatever you want, like, do you think the ultimate low, not just in terms of price, but even more importantly, time, because we know time is what really kills people, you know, from what level and what time frame, just look at market structure, just stepping back, 
how long and how deep do you think this thing could run? Well, a general um, general rule of thumb would be if the top took 18 months or two years to build, your base is going to take a year, 18 months to build um, because you have to eat through all the resistance overhead. So, you know, if you're asking, you know, even if the low on the S&P turns out to be wherever we are, 36, 3700, and you're raising cash here, you still have months and months and months ahead of base building before you even know that it looks okay to buy again. If, so, if you're an if you're an investor, is what I'm saying. For yeah, 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 no, no, trader no, versus investor. No, no, exactly. And that's what we really try to help people here. It's one thing if you're, you know, hyperactive ADD like you know Newman or or Shrub or me, and we keep changing our minds all the time. But but for the average person who's not you know looking at that carefully, I think your point's a very important one. You're saying even if the low is around here, you're gonna have six to twelve months where you're not gonna make any money anyway. So like, why bother taking the risk? Is that kind of if I heard you correctly what you're saying? Right. I mean, so, so if I take a look, if, if you take a look at a chart and you, you go back to uh, the spring low, that March low, you had a lot of stocks. Look at the IWM, look at the Russell, had made its low in January and never made a lower low in March. And, and it looked like it was starting to hold because it was down so much, first down, first, first to hold, that sort of thing. And then it just gave way after, after three months or three and a half months of holding. So, you know, it just seems to me that that why why guess? Wait until you have bases. It, you know, I talk about I often talk about the number of stocks making new lows, and um, if you go back, I'll just take you back to to the uh, two thousand two thousand and three bear market, and the peak number of new lows we had one peak after nine eleven. But we had the real peak in July of 2002. And even from that point, you had to wait until March to have fewer new lows. And, and you know, but, but subsequently, each moved down into the October 2002 low. And it, you kept having fewer and fewer stocks make new lows. Why? Because they were basing. That's how it works. Right. And, 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 and you just need to get months and months and months of that and right now we have three months of that yeah well again 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 time is what really kills people even more than price it just wears people down my friend mr chanos how are you sir hey george was in the neighborhood thought i'd drop by beautiful day in the neighborhood a beautiful day in the neighborhood will you be mine will you be mine what's what's on your mind jim what's up well, I, I I don't want to date myself, uh, but I but I know I'm older than Helene, and I'm I think you and I are the same age, although uh, you look a lot better than I do. Um, I just want to echo something that Helene said. I thought was was pretty cogent in terms of the observation we've been telling clients now for for a while, and that is the first quarter and certainly the first half of 2021 was the most speculative period I've seen in 40 years. It, it dwarfed the dot-com era, the first quarter of 2000. It dwarfed uh, the summer of 87 and, and, and so on. Um, and what, what made it so special is that, with the exception maybe of energy, um, 
everything, literally everything went manic in 2021. Um, you, you, it was not only not only speculative stocks, but it was crypto in in, uh, in May. Uh, the meme stocks actually got a second rally in May, uh, June of last year. But but you know, go across the board. We we were been t- you've been talking about Kathy Wood, but my God, utilities, REITs. I mean, a uh, uh, consumer packaged goods company. These things all uh, got, and in still some cases still are, amazingly expensive. And then layer onto it the whole crypto NFT circus, residential real estate, collectibles. I mean, literally every asset went parabolic. Again, with the exception maybe of energy and um, and 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 basic materials, which got into the act later in 2021 and early 2022. I think we kind of and and then the ending of of QE, zero uh, percent interest rates. I mean, it was all there. It all happened in the space of uh, post pandemic, massive government stimulus. I mean, it, it 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 will be written about in textbooks. I think for 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 decades, and so this unwind is going to be really interesting, to the extent that that it's managed and people try to 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 trade it tactically, whether whether bounces or, or what have you. But don't lose sight of the big picture of just how insane everything got really post-Christmas 2018 when the Fed blinked and and we brought commissions to zero in the fall of 19. And we had literally a one-month speed bump due to the pandemic. And then it was off to the races like we've never seen. And I know you traded the 80s. I did, too, in the 90s in the dot-com era. But it had nothing on what we saw. 100%, 100% Jim. Let's let's get Cantro back in here. Cantro, over to you. Hey, George. So by far the most common question asked in the last three or four months, not by anybody, is when is this going to bottom? And, you know, everyone's got an answer, Right. But why don't we go again in history and look at the answer? You know, I think the the answer is so clear. And I get, you know, I, I'm going to sound naive now and, and, you know, ridiculous. But when you go back and through history, the answer is so damn clear. There's two data points that, that you know, we look at every bottom in every sell-off that's more than 10% in a slowdown. So there's 22 of them now, including this one. You've never had a bottom without either the ISM bottoming so that's the leading indicator of the economy, or the NHB housing index bottoming. And that takes care of 2018 because, you know, right, housing, bo- housing data bottomed and started getting better because the only problem in housing was, was high mortgage rates. We didn't have an employment problem in 2018. We didn't have a high home price problem in, 20, in 2018, 19. We had a high mortgage rate problem. So that boom went away, and you immediately in December was the low of the NHB index. And so there's no other market bottom that's ever happened throughout history without one of those two things happening. So why are we talking about bear sentiment, valuations, how much the market's down, and what day of the week it is if the answer is quite clear? And listen, maybe we're at close to a bottom in the economy in the NHB or the ISM. I don't think we are. Nothing suggests we are. If anything, everything suggests we're at least six months from a bottom in housing and 12, 15 months in a bottom in the economy. So why are we even entertaining this conversation? And I, I, I understand that sounds ridiculously uh, pompous of me to say. That's the data. Getting heated. <laughs> that's, this is me getting heated. 
little different than you, George. So, Jim. Yeah. As we painfully recall, on the way up, on the road to the summit, the market never really let you get in. I mean, the declines were so short-lived and so mild. Yeah, they were. They were a couple months at best. Uh, it was fourth quarter of eighteen. Right. Uh, the, the March of twenty twenty. Right. Uh, and and a, a few months in late fifteen, early sixteen. Right. But March of twenty twenty was you know it was the pandemic. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Fine. But the point based was the market really never, never let you get in. There were a few years there where I think the market only went down like three or five percent peak to trough or whatever. So in the interest of symmetry and elegance. What if this is a kind of more, I mean, I'm just going to play a what if game. I'm not predicting this necessarily, but people recoil in horror of what's going on right now. But what if we get the converse, which is the market really never lets you get out? And, and, and the thing I'll throw in there, you know, Richard Russell famously said, you know, in a bull market, the hardest thing to do is to stay, to stay in. But in a bear market, the hardest thing to do is to stay out. And the siren calls beckon every time there's a little bit of a bounce. And, you yep. know, yep. So, 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 so what if more, I mean, look, I'm not saying it's going to go straight down, but you, know, you understand generally what I'm yeah. saying. People, people are just going to be shocked by how this, this thing just relentlessly declines for maybe, as Cantro was saying, for perhaps another 12 or 18 months. What would you say about that? Well, well George, I, you know, I'm not saying we're going to go straight down for another 18 months, but I think it's important to, to separate when the bottom going to be. The bottom you, may not may not be the time where we take back off on the upside to help. No, no, my, 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 I can't try. I'm sorry. I, I, I think you misunderstood me. I wasn't saying you said that. I'm just trying to, what I'm trying to get to, to Jim to, to, to okay. talk about or framework or thinking about how people may just be, everyone's looking for the bounce. We may really may not get any, any material sustainable bounce. What would you say to that, Jim? So, so we've, we've already, as Helene said, we've already had a number of them, by the way. I mean, we've had, we had, we've had bounces really since the first half top, a couple of the March, the March bottom. Look, my, my speculative shorts were up 40 to 50% uh, in two weeks at the end of March and, and, uh, and up about 20 to 30% at the end of May. Um, so we're getting these things. They're, they're happening and they're happening in the most speculative stocks. Um, they're not happening in, in, in some of the other areas, but in the stuff that gets washed out, we are getting, you know, the equivalent of pretty good bear market rallies every time the market sort of, you know, stops going down. Uh, the rush is to cover shorts and, and buy, buy, you know, buy beta. And I think that that so that's happening and that's been happening. Um, that's number one. But number two, I, you have to just step back and, and just look at the confluence of events that happened in 2021 and and are now in reverse. I mean, people are talking about, about well, the, the market, you know, really kind of can't go down from here because it's, it's at 16 times the estimate. And as I pointed out yesterday, you know, gang, the estimate this year is up 12% from last year for the S&P operating earnings. And it's up 50% from 2019, pre-pandemic. Um, the S&P earned 160 bucks. And, 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 and so, you know, the idea that, Operating profit margins, the S and P, which are currently at fifteen percent, normal is ten, um, and and that's normal ten, not recession. Um, you know, we have peak profit margins, and 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 so all of these things, you know, will change most likely, um, and that's going to be part of the narrative. But the idea is, where where does the pain end? Where where can I get back in? Retail flows and retail speculation, with some exceptions, maybe, you know, last week, 
but retail speculation and retail flows are still there. Uh, just just look at social media and 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 tell me that the public is terrified. They're not. And, yeah. And yeah, 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 Jim, on that, that point, if you get in that just a little bit more, one of the things that blows me away, again, you and I are old dogs. Have you ever seen something like this, this type of carnage and the public being so calm? The first, the first part of uh, the 2000 decline. So, so again, one of the speakers pointed out, uh, I think it was Helene, that, that, that the, ind- the indicators didn't start, the economic indicators didn't start dropping until late in 2000. You had the first drop from March to June. March to May, excuse me, was vicious. I mean, the, the NASDAQ was down, I think, 30% in that first drop and, and then bounced. A lot of the shorts were down 40 or 50% in, the, in March, April, May of 2000. The data was still all good. Companies were still making their numbers. And, uh, and the public was still believing. Um, it wasn't until 2001 when the economic numbers really started turning down and the frauds began being revealed um, that that, you know, sentiment began to turn pretty sour and everything started going down. Yeah, um, I remember I remember that. Well, my biggest client fired me in, in, in uh, May of 2000. So, Jim, just stay there for a second. We've got a lot of smart cookies here. I want to I want to make to maybe lob some questions at you. It's great you're here. So hey, K-Fab, I want to go to KFAB and then and then Newman KFAB. Thanks, George. I actually have uh, related questions to first Helene and, and then Jim. Um, but first, I just want to say, Helene, my, my great admiration for you, having been reading your research since the late 90s, uh, I'm married to a woman who's been in an industry of dominated by men for 20 years. Uh, and I can only imagine your trials and tribulations going through this industry since the 80s. Uh, so just you're, you're just a true inspiration. Um, for my question, my, my question for you is. Um, it, do you look at monthly charts? And, and one of the things I've noticed historically, and I'm not a chartist anywhere in your neighborhood, but um, is that the market tends to have memory over decades. And we never really tested that breakout of the double top from 2000 and you know 2007 from above. Um, so is, is that something that you think about or look at as far as kind of long-term monthly charts? I don't think I've looked at a monthly chart since the 80s. Um, so I'm probably not the one to ask. I, I like weekly charts, um, and I look at those quite frequently. Um, uh, you know, I feel like when it comes to monthly charts, it, it's the equivalent of all those people who say, had you bought Amazon in 1999, you'd be up 50,000. You know, come on. You would never have lived through the drawdown of 2000. So could we have another discussion? Who's still holding on to a stock from that long ago is not selling. So I just monthly charts to me are not terribly useful. Okay, I appreciate that, and that that's a good perspective. Because um, I I'm thinking about it not so much from a decision making perspective, but trying to kind of game theory or scenario analysis what could happen. Uh, and this yeah, relates we, to my question, my, my follow up. I'm sorry. Go one, ahead. One second. Let me just say that. You know, one of the reasons we look at charts and we ca- we care about support and resistance and all the rest of that is because what we're looking for is where did people like the stock before, i.e. support? Where did they not, where, you know, on resistance, where, where would they be sellers? Because this is where they break even and, oh, my God, thank God, get me out. 
And so that so that's your muscle memory in in terms of price. And so that's why you're looking at that. And so again, if you held Amazon since you know 1999, I don't think you're selling it now because oh my God, it came down to a certain level. But that's just how I look at it. K fair, do you have a question for Jim? Yeah, just real quick, because he, he touched upon it, um, and, and George, you and I have talked about this quite a bit in recent um, weeks and months. So this issue, if, if we get a global recession, Jim, what, what could you see S&P earnings go to if we go back to kind of a 4% operating margin? Uh, is that how you think about it within a, again, kind of a scenario analysis if we get recession or even global recession, which I'm concerned about. Ekri's talking about global recession for the first time since 8081. Um, so w- what could you envision earnings looking like in that scenario? Yeah, so I mean, uh, so S&P operating earnings, I think we're, we're, we're pretty flat from, from 2011 to 2016 during the expansion. Um, and and, and I, at, at around 120 bucks, give or plus or minus, you know, they got up to 160 and then stalled out uh, post-tax reform. A lot of that was the the, the, the one-time drop in corporate tax rates. Um, and then, you know, 2021 was the supercharger, right? After uh, they dropped to $100 in, in 2020, of course. Um, so, you know, just the, 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 the steep pandemic um, uh, slowdown recession dropped uh, dropped earnings by 40%. Um so, you know, I, earnings could easily, S&P earnings could easily in a global recession be headed back toward the mid 100s. I mean, they were there in 2019. So, uh, you know, and, and the estimate, by the way, is, is 230 this year, 250 next year. 100%, Jim. And by the way, uh, I'll get to you in a second, Cantro. But by the way, Michael Belkin, who I think, you know, who's a friend of this, yeah. room, has been here quite a lot. I don't know if you still get his stuff, but he was calling. He's pointing out, I think, if you look at if you annualize the quarterly numbers right now, he was thinking you get down, and he's always always overcooked the the stake a little bit. But he was talking about 120. So the point is, you know, where it's 150, 180, it's like in a different time zone, a few time zones away from the types of estimates that are being thrown around right now. So I think you're really on to something. So so I want to go to Cantro, and then we're going to go to Newman. Cantro, you got a quick follow-up? Yeah, well, yeah, and that's a quick point. You know, I keep hearing how much stocks are down from their peak. That's an irrelevant number because it's from a, a unicorn peak that's not going to repeat in the way we got there to Jim's point. So, like, that's a dumb number to look at, in my opinion. You know, how far are we down from 2018 levels at the end of 2018 or the middle of 2019 when earnings were 165? I think, again, that's, that's the more appropriate numbers to look at. And to Jim's point, you know, people are – everyone's beating up valuations – like, hello, didn't we get did, – did lower rates and massive stimulus not give us this ridiculously high earning numbers? I mean, we had in the U.S. economy the biggest earnings multiplier stories in history. We had a housing boom. Yep. You, you gave people money, right? Everyone's been to the casino knows you trade you, – you, you bet house money a lot differently than you do – you bet earned money. And so people spent it. And so if you, you have the you added, number – You added $10 trillion in, in, in yes. deficit spending – to an economy that was weak for three months. Yeah. So, you know, I think we've begun to reset the multiple, begun. But, you know, is the S&P trading at 15 and change? Absolutely not. It's trading at 15 and change, $240 forward 12-month earnings. Right. Unless we get another $10 trillion, that's not going to stay. So if we go back, if we use, if we take a 20% haircut from that number, and let's assume earnings are get to 192, 
we're trading at 19.2 times forward earnings. If we get to six, 165 in a recession or worse, we're trading at 22 and a half times those forward uh, numbers. I'll, so, I'll make it even worse for you. The, the big <laughs> chunk of the, that, the $230 this year in, in 220 trailing, I guess, is, uh, is energy. And, and, you know, uh, Harold Hamm is taking Continental Resources, uh, you know, private at, uh, at six times earnings. Um, and by the way, just for the energy discussion, I think you guys will all get a kick out of this. If you're looking for sentiment indicators, it's hard to beat Harold Hamm. Uh, Harold is taking uh, his bid to take the, the minority stake in Continental Private at, at four times EBITDA and six times earnings. However, uh, I, I will point out to you, that the absolute top in energy in 2014, before we saw the shale disaster of 2014 to 2016, Harold Hamm very loudly uh, uh, took off all of Continental Resources hedges right at the top. In at the top by Harold Hamm. My life and times is told totally yeah. to Yep. All right, let, let, let's move on here. Hey, Newman, what's up, man? You got a question for Elaine or, 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 or Jim? Yeah, I, I do. Um, I want to just highlight a couple things. Um, Bernie Baruch, Bernard Baruch, the continuity of bullish thought. And I think that that has just been pervasive in the markets for the last, well, I, I don't know, a decade, maybe too long, but it's close. And Helene made a great point by saying things work in layers. And I know that I think it was KFAB a few weeks ago, he opined that before all of the clean out occurs, you need to see things like energy actually trade poorly if we're in a sort of broader based market. And uh, Helene pointed out the commodity space. And I, a while back, talked about this PDBC, which is a um, uh, it's a, it's a, it's commodity related fund and I've been involved and DBA was another one that Tony Greer always talks about both of those. I'd been involved for a while and I did reduce those recently because they're trading poorly because I think that the commodity complex could be facing this sort of stagflationary problem that we're all looking at. And I think that, you know, it's smart to be uh, nimble in the energy space here because it does have to you know breathe a little bit and we might be in trouble in the short term if it's yeah. a broader bear market here now my question is sort of to to, to jim here and it, it speaks to how wall street works right there's cottage industries that pop up it's crypto now it was cdos it could be esg we could talk about that but i don't want to get into that louis ranieri right and the mortgage bonds blind, yep. ma blind master in the blockchain what happens is all these banks see the guy next door doing all this stuff and then they try to poach the the quasi experts, the disciples of Louis Ranieri, the yep. disciples of Blythe Master, and they don't understand the product fully. And then they go out and start pitching to all the new clients, building up the new business, high margins. And then all of a sudden, there's just pile up of product out there from yep. not from not everyone who knows what's going on. And then yep. I asked Jim, my question to Jim here is, how close, how big, how close to the Galbraith, Max Bezel, are we here, given the proliferation of every, quote, expert pitching their wares? Yeah, so it's a great, it's a, it's a great question. Uh, I'd go back even a little further and, and tell you by the late 80s, all the, all the uh, investment banks that were trying to emulate Mike Milken and, and the high yield issuance. And so you end up with Credit Suisse and DLJ and, and, uh, and Kidder Peabody just 
completely eviscerating themselves by by competing to underwrite even worse directs than Drexel had by '89 uh, when we had the the credit crunch of '89 '91. Um, so, yeah, that that's as old as Wall Street, right? Because it's it's something new to sell, and 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 Wall Street, lest we not forget, is always about selling. And so, I think that that. Um, again, a lot of these things, uh, and you, you, you touched on a number of them, ESG, uh, uh, crypto, um, and, and, uh, and blockchain. I mean, these were just all tailor-made for, for building up new departments and selling new products to clients on Wall Street. And, and we're going we're gonna to see, obviously, the flip side of that. But let us not lose sight that the epicenter of the golden age of fraud is still squarely centered in Silicon Valley. Uh, I mean, kind of all roads go back there. Uh, if you're looking for the excesses of this past market, and, and, and I'm not talking specifically about individual you know, groups within it, Kathy Wood, any of that. I'm talking even more broadly, the whole concept of deflation, huge amounts of money going to deflationary business models that are just inherently unprofitable, topped with the whipped cream and cherry on top of the most egregious pro forma metric accounting you possibly could ask for, where massive companies that are structurally unprofitable, like Salesforce.com you know, and others, are, are telling you with a straight face we're making money when you look on their gap financial statements, you see that they're losing money. And, and it, it, it's, it's of course mostly due to share based comp, which is now taking an, a higher and higher part of operating profitability out of the, the technology space and people, people continue to swallow it. And, and I think that, that when people ask me, where's, where's the fraud, where's the bezel? I said, the bezel's for the most part staring you right in the face it's it's a block telling you that they're they're going to make a dollar this year and when you look at the gap eps estimate it's negative a dollar uh it's it's zoom telling you you know it's down from and they're going to make three dollars and fifty cents this year so it's cheap at 30 times and then you look at the gap estimate and it's actually a dollar fifty it's trading yes. at 70 yes, 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 so jim let me let me ask you a little deeper on that so um, it's basically just a rehash, I think, of what you're saying, maybe slightly more nuanced point. This sort of Rube Goldbergian perpetual money machine type of market where you have companies selling dollar bills for 80 cents, losing yep. money when properly accounted for. But in a world where, as Carl Sagan would say, in a world where capital is free, where there's no price discovery, you're just making up those the the negative cash flows with with, with, with free money, right. you know, employee stock options, the whole right. bit. If we normalize the cost of capital, yep, all this crap goes away, and so it's worse than that. It's it, it, it will be the knock on effects of the dot com implosion, because the the a big market for things like semiconductors, cloud services, data centers, all this is coming from startups who, who had no no restraint on their spending and, and were told to grow at all costs. And now those budgets are being, you know, clipped pretty quickly. And that's going to reverberate. You know, we have to remember just how, how uh, uh, the whole tech economy basically depends upon itself. And, and yes, there's corporate IT spending, but, but that will moderate. 
the real reason the cloud is growing 30 to 40 percent a year and every SaaS company is growing 40 to 50 percent a year and and data centers traded 80 to 100 times earnings is because of this IT CapEx growth in in the cloud. So this is all reflexivity on steroids. Jim, just stay with that a little bit further. What about the whole notion of, you know, employee stock option expense and, and, and you know, now like, you know, if, you, if you're if you a Netflix employee and the stock's no higher now than it was six years ago, all of a sudden you might want, want to ask for a cash uh, right. pay increase. So could you speak a little bit to the accelerant, um, the accordion effect of, 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 of stock, employee stock options and how that's going to blow up and, and go the opposite way now? Yeah. So, I mean, it, 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 it obviously depends on each issuer, right? But but it's meaningful for almost the entire technology space. It's it's more meaningful for some companies than others. But but should stocks continue to drop, your the, the virtuous circle becomes a vicious cycle. Uh, the ability and and by the way, you know we we saw that in in the company near and dear to my heart called Enron, where Enron had had done the secret codicils with the offshore entities to issue them Enron stock should the deals go bad, and never disclosed it. And that's why, why Skilling resigned. And so you've got now, it's all being disclosed, of course, but, but the numbers are no less material. And, and when you've got companies like Coinbase, you know, issuing $350 million worth of share-based comp every quarter, um, it, you know, it, 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 it's kind of stunning uh, of how much equity issuance is happening and how much the employees are financing the business. Everybody forgets about that. Because if you look in the operating cash flow statement, SBC is an ad back above the line. And, and, and so, you know, all these cash flows look better than they really are because you're, in effect, the employees are financing your business model. And, 100%. And so, 100%. Yeah, and, and people don't appreciate that risk. 100%. Hey, George, right. let me George, let me jump in one more yeah, point. Yeah. Jim, for a change, nails it, obviously. That's not a surprise. Talks about Silicon Valley and them being the crux of a lot of this. I want to point everyone to a Tyler Cowen interview of Mark Andreessen, which happened, I think, in the last two or three days, discussing Web Web 3. It, it was, you it was hysterical. You it was hysterical. Yeah, he's... You know, oh, look, Mark obviously is a thought leader, legend, obviously, in the Silicon Valley world. But you ask him to talk – Tyler Cowen asked him to talk about Web3. He was talking in completely trite, overused, we're injecting economy into the web and stuff like this. You listen to that, and it's almost like even Andreessen realizes there is a limit to the bullshit and the bezel. So, what, so that, that I, I reposted that interview. It's fantastic. He could not come up with, with a real reason as to what Web3 did different than anything else. It was a lot of uh, the usual kind of Silicon Valley word salad. We're going to look at these kinds of things. I, I, I hearken back to the Sam Bankman Freed interview uh, on Bloomberg two months ago, where he, he said all the quiet parts out loud about the crypto space. The, ma- the magic uh, box. The magic box and the Ponzi economics. I mean, you know, these guys are telling you this. And, and, and <laughs> I mean, it, it's, again, I said historians are going to have, a, financial historians are going to have a field day when they look back at this saying, what were these people thinking? 100%. It, it speaks to how hungry the public is, right? It's incredible. Yeah. All right. So right, hold on. Hold on. Hold on. Wait, hold on. I, I, want, have one, I have one last question before I have to hop. Yeah. All right, Helene. Yep. You already know I'm bearish on semis. So here's my question. Wasn't one of the reasons that you wanted to own semis was because crypto was so hot and they needed a lot of semis? 
Yeah. So, so I'm sure at the data centers and, 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 and I will tell you that the, one of the givens still in tech, Helene is, is semi-demand is going to continue to be robust. And the cloud of course is going to continue to grow at, at you know, 20 to 40% a year. And, and when, you know, I, I asked, we challenged that and say, okay, but, but a lot of this is coming from just startups and, and people just willy nilly expanding budgets without any governor on them. Um, you know, uh, you get a shrug. And, and I think that you remember, I think George, you certainly remember, I bet Helene remembers when WorldCom in late 2000, I was finally admitted that internet traffic was slowing. And that was the next leg down for tech, which had kind of bounced after the May bottom, May 2000 bottom, and, and kind of bounced a little bit and, and was sort of doing better. Uh, the next leg down of the tech stocks was after that revelation by WorldCom. And, and I think we're going to get a, We're going to walk in one day and we're going to hear, you know, Amazon Web Service or Google or Microsoft Azure tell us that cloud spending is slowing. And that's not a day you're going to want to be long this stuff because that is underpinning a lot of the semis, a lot of, you know, a lot of other ancillary tech valuations are dependent on the cloud still growing 20 to 40% a year. Jim, hey, Helene, can I, can no, I no, Mark, 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 no, Mark, Mark, hold on, hold on, hold on. All of this, it's just, you know, walk down memory lane. There really is nothing new. On this. We've seen this all before. Yeah, it's different. It's different guises, different, you know, different levels, different companies, obviously. But but the amount of spending and, and you know, I've said that what we've seen recently was the dot com era on steroids. The amount of money and the valuations of really questionable business models was 10x what it was in 99, 2000, in, right. in 2020 and 2021. Right. It really was 10x. That's great. And so so this is far, far bigger than than the dot com um, and internet era, um, you know, kind of craziness, and and all kinds of companies will obviously come out of this and survive it, but we have to understand just how much capital went to all this. Hundred percent, Helene. Helene, before you go, uh, one of your fans, uh, Crypto Jack, has a question for you. Crypto Jack, have at it. Hey, okay, thank you guys. But wait, one second, Crypto Jack. I just wanted to sure. say something. Um, I have posted this chart several times on Twitter. And I suggest, I don't know, you know, Twitter search function is terrible. But take a look at the SOX relative to NASDAQ. And I have posted it dating back to the dot-com bubble. And you will see that a month ago, everybody was so excited that the semis were outperforming. And I pointed out that in 2000, the semis continued to outperform for quite some time. And when they stopped, they stopped big time. Yeah. Yep. Exactly. Okay. Go ahead. Okay. Crypto Jack, uh, it's your Crypto Jack, it's yours. Go for it. Thank, thank you, guys. Hey, um, Helene, big fan of yours. Been been a big fan for a long time. Uh, question for you. Uh, I, I am. I know there's crypto in the name and all this stuff, but put that aside for a minute. I'm a, a technical analyst by heart. That's my that's my um, my love. But Bruce Frazier, another person I'm a, a big fan of, put out a analysis not too long ago during his power charting, uh, where he likened uh, and kind of what if the current pandemic and the way that the Dow Jones is performing uh, compared to the 1917 to 1920 Spanish flu. <laughs> and what he, what he pointed out was that there was a massive sell-off, a you know, face-melting rally, and then eventually, within about a couple years, a retrace all the way back 
to the lows before the run-up. So in this scenario, this would be like the, you know, the March 2020, uh, the market's returning all the way back to the March 2020 level. So anyway, this is my question for you. I, have you considered something like that? Uh, do you see anything else? Uh, you mean the S&P back factors? to 1800 is what you're saying? Correct, Correct. yes, or, uh, or 20,000 or whatever it was for the Dow Jones, et cetera. Well, um, I'm fond of saying I'm not one of these people who pays attention to levels. Um, you know, I, I, oftentimes a, a, an index will break a line and I don't really care because if I've got divergences, to me, that's more important. Um, so can we get back there? Yeah. Right now, the measure target on the Dow is really only to about 28,000. I would need a rally honestly, in the Dow of some sort to start measuring lower targets just based off the patterns. Um, so that's, yeah. that's just where, that's just where the market is now only because we've come, we keep, you know, you keep coming down, eventually you hit a measure target and then you absolutely need a rally to, to get a new pattern measurement. Um, at least that's, you know, the way I do it. Um, but, um, and, and the S and P, I think the measure target is, uh, I uh, about thirty six hundred ish. So you're sort of in that whole neighborhood now, of where you really kind of need a bounce, um, right? And we know that the you know the Fed's going to continue their their offloading. They're going to double down in September. So I just I'm kind of sitting here scratching my head as man. I I wonder if we really do see something like this. It doesn't. A, a while back, it would have sounded crazy. Now it doesn't sound too crazy. So anyway, thanks for your thoughts. Thanks, guys. Hey, hey uh, one one more question. I'm not going to let you go. Tommy, do you have a question? Tommy Thornton, you got a question for Helene, Tommy? Tom Thornton, can you unmute yourself? All right, I guess not. Marathon, do you have a question for uh, Helene? Marathon? I, I sure do. Thank you uh, for, for letting me up, George. And uh, Helene, I've always loved your stuff. A couple of quick questions. One on um, uh, the agriculture comments that you had. And just curious where you think that sector uh, might generally bottom just because as you noted you know wheat prices and actually the entire agricultural complex still it's it's a huge divergence wheats are you know the grains are really high fertilizer stocks have completely rolled over um where do you think that sector goes from here i have a target on um nutrient which is somewhere in around in the seven in the low 70s so, um, I mean, I think it's going to bounce before then because, it, you know, I don't think it's going down a straight line. Although, quite frankly, I thought Exxon might have a bounce on Friday. Um, but Nutrien's the only one I have off the top of my head. CF has a lower target, but I'm sorry, I don't have it off the top of my head. Um, and I don't have the mosaic one off the top of my head. Obviously, you can see where I'm active. <laughs> For sure. Super helpful. So so a follow-up question on the renewable space. I hate them as businesses, but if you're thinking that big cap tech can have a bounce, the renewables look like a space that kind of bottomed a little bit in sort of March and then again in, in May. They're, you know, those and acting reasonably better. Is that a space in that same genre that if the market is a whole bounce, that that can be kind of a high beta equivalent? Um uh, to to sort of uh, follow on as well. I'm thinking. All right, like tan, I'm, I'm at a loss here. Can you, give me, can you give me some names? I don't know. Yeah, what's sure. Renewable. Yeah, like the big ETF, like Tan, which is the solar ETF, oh, or iClean, ICLN, Solar. Exactly. Um, yeah, can bounce, but I I've got this gigantic line 
on First Solar that it has been holding for so long. And I keep looking at it and I keep thinking it looks just like Qualcomm, which just broke on Thursday or Friday. So um, yeah, you can get a bounce. You probably should get a bounce, but um, I'd be real careful if you broke that line because it's going to look like that Qualcomm break. For sure. All right. Hey, thank th you so much. Thanks, Marathon. Hey, Helene, uh, we're, you, you, you've been a, a real champion trooper. I hope you come back. This has been awesome. Uh, I know you got other things to do. You're welcome to stay, but um, we got plenty else to talk about. So hang around as you wish. But you said, I think, I thought you said you were running short on time. So, uh, I, I, yeah, I got to hop. All right. Th thanks, thanks so much, Helene. Great conversation. Th thanks. thanks so much. Thanks so much. Right. So, so, Ernest, I think you had a question for Jim or comment to Jim about the data centers. Ernest, the floor is yours. Thanks, George. <clears throat> and thanks to all you guys have been listening to you for quite some time with a lot of respect and really appreciate your, your, your rooms that you hold, George. Just a comment that Jim was saying earlier about the sort of, um, I guess, you know, he was talking about the whole sort of cloud computing and, and, and all these tech companies contributing to huge growth there and all that. I mean, I, he, he was kind of talking about a lot of things, but he, but he kind of made it sound that a lot of it's just going to all kind of disintegrate into uh, smithereens because they're all depending on each other. I, I would like to just at least put forward that I, I strongly disagree with that. I think that there are some companies that are smaller, that are quite ridiculous in, in the way they're funding themselves and, and all the stock-based comp. But I think in the main, you know, if you look at the, the, the large enterprises globally, there's about 10 to 15% of their workloads that are currently in the cloud. And that's going to grow over the next 10 years quite a lot. So I don't think that this is all one big sort of let's call it a Ponzi within itself. It, I, it really isn't that in my view. I think it's got lots of legs. And, uh, you know, I think the, the big cloud companies are going to do well over the next couple of years. So let, me, let, let, me, let me point out, I, I did not say cloud spending is Ponzi. Uh, so I want to be clear about that. And, and what I said was, I don't think cloud spending, cloud growth is going to continue at the supercharged pace of the last few years, which has been 30 to 40% a year. Um, uh, th that doesn't mean that cloud growth will not be above, you know, uh, corporate revenue growth, it will. Um, and, and, and that goes without saying. The problem, of course, is, is that all kinds of companies have baked into their numbers and their business plans continued 30 to 40% growth. And as we saw with the internet stocks in, post 2000 when things slowed down and capital spending particularly in the telecom space slowed down uh you know lots of businesses imploded because they had built their cost structures for continued 30 and 40 percent growth and were caught flat-footed that's not to say that telecom and internet spending didn't continue to grow it did and and it continued to, to be a real thing the cloud will continue the transformation of 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 corporate data to the cloud is going to continue. Now, there are specific instances. I mentioned the data centers. Uh, the data centers trade at 80 to 100 times earnings, uh, and, and they're being valued as REIT cash flows. But if you look at them, their CapEx equals their depreciation, unlike other REITs. They're incredibly capital-intensive businesses. 
And the most amazing thing about these stocks is that their largest customers are turning into their largest competitors. The largest customers for the data centers are Amazon, Google, and Microsoft, the hyperscalers. And as people actually migrate from keeping their data on co-located servers sitting in a data center to having AWS or Azure do everything for them um, in the cloud, you know, there's no need for a data center. And, and so, you know, there's all kinds of ways to, to, to look at this and say that the disruption is actually, you know, going to affect some of the disruptors. But all of it will be under pressure if cloud growth goes, you know, 30 to 40 percent to, to 10 to 20 percent. Thanks for that, Jim. Um, Tommy Thornton, are you there? Unmute yourself if you are. Otherwise, go to Oil God. Tommy, good to hey. see you. What's up? Hey, what's up, Tommy? Hey, how are you guys? Um, yeah, good conversation. Uh, wow. Yeah, it's been uh, quite a week. And um, I think um, just everybody is very happy that we have a holiday on Monday. I'm sorry for everybody outside of the country that has to go to work on Monday, but um, it's certainly um, most welcome. I, um, I'm going to say this and I'm probably going to, you know, just get hate mail. I, I think the markets are going to bounce and I think it's going to be 15 to 20% this go. And we've had five waves down in the market, uh, bullish sentiment on every single poll is at extreme lows, the internals and the technicals, when you have 1% of the S&P 500 above the 50 or the 20, 10, 20 and 50 day moving average and the 200 day uh, around, I think it's around 10%. Uh, those are pretty low. Uh, back in the end of last year, I had, I screened for DeMarc signals, exhaustion signals. And at last year, all I had were sell signals, not only on the daily, but on the weekly timeframes. And I've seen this before, played this a, a few times in my career. And I think there's a lot of really, really nasty stuff this go around. You've got a lot of unknowns, um, landmines, I like to call them, with crypto, with credit, with sovereign yields. A, a, and and I am, a, I'm, first of all, everybody should know, I am a big, humongous skeptic always i worked for a hedge fund that was net short in our entire existence and we made money every single year but i'm just going to say all i'm seeing are buy signals right now in the demark side not only in the s&p but the euro stock 600 and we're seeing them on s&p nasdaq iwm russell a few others out there and i don't want to be bullish i'd rather go with the trend but everything i have right now in front of me is saying that we're going to bounce and i'll tell you this truth be told i i bought i bought i i've had 50 percent in cash and and more market neutral with everything i have and i and by the way and george you know this i've been telling people i'm short energy energy stocks all i had in the last few months were sell signals on Exxon with all of them. And you can, it's on record. I'm on record um, in the work I do that all there were were sell signals. I'm short, I'm short some energy. I uh, covered some um, a little early, but the bottom line is these are the signals I'm seeing. And maybe this time is different. Maybe we'll have a waterfall event 
And if that happens, um, that, so be it. We'll, we'll figure it out then. But I will say, I'm just going back. Truth be told, I bought some, I, I put exposure to work on the long side uh, the day with Powell. Um, I trimmed them uh, basically the next, the next, I think I trimmed some on Friday. Uh, partly because it just, I saw what was happening. It wasn't working. And the other thing, lastly, the positioning is really offsides right now on a lot of different, uh, I mean, the hedge funds are max short. They shorted more than all the prime brokerages have ever seen in one week. So look, there's a lot of fuel for a bounce and I'm just laying it out there and I'm not necessarily, look, yeah, Tommy, 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 that's great. Do you have a question for Jim? Tommy? No. Hey Jim, how are you? Oh, by the way, Jim, I'm still short Tesla and I think we're in the uh, golden age of fraud with Tesla and all the recent regulatory things where they're going after um, Price Waterhouse um, and Tesla, I think this is a huge thing that got overlooked this last this last week because the market was just so awful. Uh, I'm not familiar with the name, but I'll take a look. <laughs> they make solar batteries. <laughs> <laughs> no. But yeah, Jim, I, I hear I hear they've made a good investment in, in, in crypto and Bitcoin. All right, thanks for that, Tommy. Hey, oil guy, oil guy, you got a question for, for Mr. Chanos? I sure do, George. Thank you so much. Great space. Uh, Tommy, congratulations on breaching 80,000 followers. Very well deserved. Um, and I do love your, your sort of handedness and forwardness. Um, but, Jim, it's a treat to listen to you. And, uh, George, before I forget, the, Miss Helene, if I'm not mistaken her name, Please have her back on. I mean, what a breath of fresh air. It's so nice to hear these people with such great industry experience. And I know uh, they wouldn't be here if it wasn't for you. So congratulations. Uh, so, Jim, what you and George were speaking about earlier is a retail and a wealth management and a, you know, what you call an industry that is predominantly, as we all know, in sales. And so you've got basically nothing working. Uh, Tommy is now shorting my first name. Right. And so what you've got, um, you know, and obviously my first name was doing fantastic up until perhaps maybe a week or two ago. So, Tommy, hats off to you for the near term. We'll see what happens. But, Jim, I want to ask you, what are people going to be selling in the next three to six months? I mean, crypto's done. Technology, you know, are we going to be buying the dip in this inflationary environment? I just want to know what would you say if you were the CIO of any of these sort of Morgan Stanleys or any of these institutions? Thank you. <laughs> um you know they'll they'll still be they'll be still uh, trying to sell something i can assure you now we know in 0708 they were trying to sell the uh the uh the z tranche of, of mortgage securitizations that they couldn't unload on people to uh you know through cdo squared and whatever and and, and on on whatever uh, muppets uh, that they had as clients um so the the balance sheets of, of the of the brokers I don't think are the issue. Um, I certainly think Silicon Valley, um, you know, geared up to 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 sell tokens, and uh, you know, a la a la Mr. Andreessen's uh, venture firm, you know, all kinds of kind of wacky ventures. That's sort of a satellite issue, and I think that's probably the closest we have to to oh seven oh six oh seven oh eight. Um, where the banks were trying to get rid of radioactive paper, I think all kinds of uh, venture capital guys are going to be trying to get rid of tokens and and stakes in uh, 
in in private enterprises um and we haven't really discussed that today but that's you know that's another shoe to drop by the way the valuation of of private um uh, equity holdings by by lots of funds um so i suspect that's going to be if this was a silicon valley centric kind of uh uh you know, exponential rise in the last two years. I suspect that that all kinds of various different ventures, coins, uh, tokens, and uh, and privates are going to be what uh, what are be continued to be packaged up uh, and 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 sold by the street uh, in some way, shape, or form to uh, people who are eager to get in on the first uh, the first big dip. Wonderful. Thank you for that. And if I can do one follow-up, I mean, we talk about these frauds and, and sort of the, the frauds of the future. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm actually with Tommy. I'm, I'm short Tesla again. Um, what do you think of the whole climate narrative, this ESG kind of yeah. carbon credit, all this kind of bullshit? Because, I mean, you're seeing departments being made. You know, I, I was listening to a, uh, a carbon CEO talking about how people can reduce their footprint but yet it sounds like absolute just hypocrisy. Uh, and it seems to, you know, again, I, I go back to my first name here. Um, I'm long energy not because I, I like the commodity. I like the valuations of companies that, you know, are improving free cash flow and in a very, very uh, weakening economic environment. So, you know, when I look at the ESG narrative, I, I literally smile because these people are making us a fortune by allowing fossil fuels not to be fueled. I just wanted to know your comments on sort of that space of ESG. And do you see this as something that's going to change or you see this as just as a polarizing topic and it's like guns for the Republicans? Yeah, I think there's a lot of politics in the whole ESG space and, and the marketing of it. Uh, I mean, so we're short a couple of, of, of really kind of dodgy renewables companies that trade in insane valuations. Um, you can figure out one of them from my feed, but uh, you know we're we're just they've sold you on this concept of of net present value of of you know installations as opposed to cash flows and earnings, which there are none, and and so it's a space that lends itself to to hucksterism, uh, and so you're going to attract. They, they find it funny that a lot of the solar panel guys. Uh, marketing departments are staffed by people who sold subprime mortgages in Southern California. Um, and, and so it's, it's a, it's a space that has allowed itself because of the capital has kind of gone in willy nilly into ESG funds and ESG, ESG compliant funds. It is, it is really enabled all kinds of silly business models, um, to be, uh, to be funded, uh, hat in hand with, with Silicon Valley, um, so it's a fertile area on the short side, number one. Number two, I don't think it's going away. I, I think that, that like a lot of things, like, you know, the anti-tobacco, uh, anti-things, uh, uh, anti-apartheid investing, uh, this is now kind of embedded in a lot of institutional mindsets and, and, and boards of big institutions. So I don't think it's going to go away, but I do think it's, it's pretty silly and it's it's a pretty good source of alpha either way, long and short, if you can divorce the ESG narrative to the actual uh, businesses. Wonderful, thank you, George. Back to you, um, Michael. You haven't spoken up, Michael. You, you got something? Uh, you want to? You have a question for Jim, Michael? Hi, hi George. Hi, George. Uh, thank you, thank you. What a fantastic group today. You have the king of the short here, and. Uh, you know, 
I don't have a question. I think uh, I, I would ask a question, Jim, uh, uh, you know, about uh, whether he thinks there could be a crash. Because all the analysis, uh, you know, I'm a natural bull, but uh, my analysis with uh, high beta and uh, large caps and uh, lo even low volatility large caps shows 20% additional uh, drawdown. So this is one question. I just want to make a comment. Uh, you mentioned before the market neutral, and I almost fell off my chair. Uh, <laughs> I wish, uh, you know, I, I knew a way to do market neutral. Uh, you know, the Quantopian uh, 200 million financed by this, uh, you know, very famous trader in New York. Uh, they had uh, 200,000 quants looking for a market neutral strategy and they, they failed. So <laughs> that was funny. So that's what I want to ask uh, Jim, the king of the shorts, uh, whether he thinks possibility of a crash is real. Um, well, it's always real. I, 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 you know, I don't structure. I mean, we have a small tail risk fund for clients, but, but that's focused on our actual fundamental names, not the indices. Um, and, and, and so I look, I, I don't know. I mean, basically we have, you know, we have that, we have our short only and we have our hedge fund, our hedge fund moves around in exposures. Um, right now it is pretty much a net net zero. Um, it was, it's been pretty negative, you know, zero to 20% all year. It's kind of back towards zero right now. Uh, but, but, um, I, that's not to say that, that we are positioning the portfolio because we think a, a crash, meaning, you know, a very quick 20 to 40% drop is, is going to occur. I have no way. I, I, I don't know. I, you know, trying to pick that stuff is, is, is generally a waste of my time. Um, I, I'm better off looking at companies. So, um, I, I don't, I have no clue. I think there are other people on this call that are better, better suited to, to answer that. Um, you know, our short fund is always net short, you know, anywhere from, from 50 to 90% and our hedge fund moves around either side of zero. So I'm not the best, I'm not the best guy to hey, ask that hey, question. Hey, 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 Jim, can I have a question on that? Yeah, there's there's a couple, many, many ways you can roll with this. One is, you know, you have a top-down view, but <laughs> like you, like you, I don't trust my top-down view. The better way to do it is pure bottom-up. You got the things you hate, you don't like, they're overpriced, that are frauds, that are, right. you know, fun. again, you put them on one side of the ledger, you got things you might want to buy on the other side of the ledger, and then you look at the relative size of those piles and your relative conviction. So in the continuum of things, yeah, how would you characterize your shit list? Is it relatively small or big? And how would you characterize your list of potential buys? Yeah. So, so again, the, our portfolio changed. If you looked at our portfolio a year ago, it was, it was loaded and it was painful until, till really June. Uh, it, it was in, in the, 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 the zooms and the Pelotons and the, the Robin hoods and DraftKings and things like that. Uh, and and now um, that's changed quite a bit in our portfolio. We have a lot more industrials. 
Um, we have a, a lot more REITs. We have a lot more sort of one-off uh, uh, renewables. I mean, it, it's, it's not, it looks quite a bit different. There's still 50 names. And, and so, but they're different than what they were a year ago. And, and that we, we basically look at what the market's giving us. And I mean, this market has given us so much insanity that, that, you know, there's just yep. a plethora of things to look for. So it's not, it's not like we're having any problems finding great short ideas. There's a ton of them. Yeah. And, and, and Jim, on the long side, is, is your, is your buy list small? We're passive. We're passive, George. It's easy. Yeah. The buy list is real yeah. simple. It's just a matter of S and P's, QQQ's. Yeah. I yeah. Right. That, that's fine. That's fine. That's fine. All right. Yeah. A few more questions. We're going to wrap this room up. Jim, this has been fantastic. So much, so much for coming here. Cause it's, it's rare that this is such a treat. And I know everyone's learned a lot from you. So no, seriously, I'm not trying to blow smoke up your backside. I need to, well, this is really awesome. All right. So we got, we got three more, three more questions. And then we're going to call it a day. So we're going to do and keep it tight and keep it short, please. I want to go to hedge reaper and then we're going to go to trader, to trader, Tony, hedge reaper, please. Oh, he went away. Trader, Tony, uh, you're up. What's up, trader, Tony. Hey, George. Um, and I was, I couldn't miss a chance to uh, speak to you, Jim. So thank you for being here and thank you for hosting this. It's an absolute pleasure. First and foremost, um, having said that, um, I'll have a quick question. I'm hoping maybe you can educate me. From my understanding, and uh, the market right now is being uh, driven or traded more on an options market than as opposed to um, the underlying asset. So if that fact is true, and interrupt me if it's not, but from what I'm seeing, it is. And if that is true, then in this time versus previous sell-offs, could we be looking at a different type of sell-off? Because if the majority of active money is not necessarily holding shares, that the sell-off may be limited or capped, especially if it's the institutions and funds all holding and the only real sell-off is each other, especially at a time where no matter what we're dealing with, with the Fed uh, pulling back their funds, that there's still so much leftover liquidity regardless of the amount being pulled out that it's just so hard to you know, look at the floor of the S&P uh, or the SPX you know, anywhere near the prior levels of even March 2020. Even if the Fed is removing the amount of money, they can't take it all one time. It's not. And there's still trade, a lot of trade, money. Trade, trade, Tony, 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 what? What's the question, please, Tony? What's the Basically, question? could the could the um, the fact that the market now is being traded on options as opposed to shares change the the movement, even if we have a downfall or increase because of the liquidity? Uh, I suppose so, but I, I would take maybe the the glass half empty side of that argument and say that the explosion in option trading coincided almost perfectly with the drop in retail commission trading um, in fall of nineteen. You can look back and, and just see. That that the public discovered the stock market in late 2019, both both you know in in actual trades and and in option trading, and we are seeing deep liquid option trading in all kinds of esoteric names that we would have never been able to do, you know, derivative strategies in, uh, particularly post meme stock, um, and and I would just tell you that the most active option traded stocks in the first half of 2021 have been the stocks that have gone down the most. So, 100%, Jim. so I, I don't know that the logic of your argument, you know, necessarily I would agree with in that it to me that, that just saying there's option trading and therefore no underlying share risk, I think is false. Thank, thanks for that. Uh, thanks, Jim. All right. Real quick. I want to knock off these last few questions. I want to I want to I want to wrap up this room. We, we all have better things to do, although it's great hanging out. We, we, we get a life, guys, as I was saying. We'll go. Trent Wizzo, you got a quick question for, for, for Jim. Trent Wizzo? Yes. Quick question, uh, George. Thank you for hosting the spaces. And uh, Jim, uh, thank you for providing your insights. Uh, 
a few few months ago you had a agile session got a lot of themes from that i did my own work and created a, a short set of baskets on those themes be it solar be it uh, esg be it other sort of stuff so the question uh, is okay d uh, dm me your address i'll send you a bill <laughs> sure sure thank you jim so uh, jim real quick um, from a standpoint of uh, Uh, you know george always keeps saying about uh, stay short of flat short of flat uh, and bear market rallies can be vicious from a professional standpoint how do you manage your bear market rally drawdowns uh, as a, even at a net zero or even at a net short uh, positioning what kind of exhaustions you look at uh, thank you well i just I, i i just gave you a little bit of a hint about that uh, one of the one of the nice things about the bull market in the past two years has been the explosion in option trading and and it has enabled us to actually structure trades or structure or, you know hedges against our 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 fundamental view uh, in a way we never would have been able to do in 07 08 or 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 2000 2001 where where you really only had deep li- liquid option trading on the biggest names and now you can do it in just about every name in my portfolio i there's there's reasonably liquid option markets So I have a I have a desk that does nothing but in conjunction with with our fundamental view and our main trading desk you know looks for ways to to you know take advantage of of rising volatility uh, in our names or or structure so I I know that's not a whole really specific but I think you get the idea that uh that you know when the when the when the VIX gets to 32 or 35 or 40 there's ways we will look at our positions differently than when it's at 18 and and so you know that we're just trying to take advantage of 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 people covering shorts or or people despondently selling you know into the hole as best as we can providing liquidity on the other side with an overall fundamental view as george would say you know where we're still short but we might not be short 2 or 3% of the portfolio we might only be short 1% and in a different structure if the stock drops 30% quickly and so again we're just trying to tactically take advantage of the market alongside fundamental views on companies that something's going to zero we're going to be short it it's just a matter of of if it's down 50% in a month the 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 look of that short and the size of that short might be a lot different after that 50% drop you know th- than it was before so hey, 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 Jim, on that, just one, one question might be helpful for the audience because, you know, let's be real here. I, again, I know you well if I can say this. You know, you, you're a name. People always kind of wonder, like, how the sausage has been made and what's going on behind the curtain. Just a general guideline, like, how big will you get in any one name on the short side? Is it like 2%, 5%? Like, how big yeah, we, we have, a, we have a, a, a general limit of 5%. So, so, and that can be a little bit different if it's structured structured you know via limited risk vehicles we take that into account but uh, you know enron was never more than a 5% position wirecard was never more than a 5% position um you know it's 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 been a pretty good rule to have because of course it it keeps us a lot of trouble it's why you know why tesla didn't put us out of business uh, we just kept cutting back on the position sure. and, uh, oh, that's great that's great so yeah we we have pretty rigorous risk you know risk rules Right, that's awesome. All right, listen, no more questions. If you're up on the stage, you'll get your question answered. Otherwise, we're, I'm trying to get everybody out of here. We're going we're gonna to go, we're gonna go to James Loca, and then we're going to do Lynn. James, you got a quick question for Jim? James, unmute yourself, please. Yeah, Th- thanks for the time. Appreciate it, uh, George, and, and thanks, uh, Jim. Yeah. Um, over the last few years, it's been a common trade um, 
so some guys looking north to the Canadian banks and, and sort of a premise um, being on real estate market and sort of the mortgage golden goose. Have you guys ever had a fundamental view on the Canadian banks or uh, yeah, I'll, I'll leave it there. Yeah. So, so we have uh, in the past, we've been short some Canadian real estate plays. We're not right now. Um, uh, two, two comments. Um, number one, I think the really interesting place to be is, is in the REIT space in the U.S. for lots of reasons I kind of already talked about. I, I think REIT and cap rates in the United States are completely insane, um, you know, particularly in light of where, where government rates are now. You know, office buildings still at 6%, warehouses at 3%, uh, data centers at 4% cap rates. These are all insane. Uh, but I should also caution you. The second point is, you know, I've been throwing stones at the biggest real estate bubble in history for the last 12 years in China and, and anything that's happening in Canada, which of course has been driven a little bit by Chinese investors, but anything that's happening in, in, in Canada, the U S or anywhere else is dwarfed by what, uh, by what is still going on in China. China's still building 20 million apartments a year. It hasn't stopped. And so and a lot of people don't talk about China risk anymore, which is kind of interesting. Um, but but that real estate insanity is has slowed down in terms of price appreciation. But its role in the Chinese economy is is as big as it's ever been. Thanks for that. great, Jim. Hey, Lynn, unmute yourself. You got a question for Jim. And after Lynn, we're going to go to Hedge Reaper. Lynn, the floor is yours. Great. Thank you, George. And uh, thanks, Jim, for doing this. Uh, just a few quick one. Uh, one on portfolio management. Um, it is my understanding that you you long the index and then you short uh, trash and frauds that you find. Right. And when I just take that at face value, it would seem that you have a lot of mismatching factors, uh, mismatching in yep. industries. Yep. Just one quick thoughts on, you know, how you kind of view that mismatch. Uh, number yeah. one. Uh, number two, yep, uh, go ahead. Uh, in terms of a macro question, obviously, a lot of what we've seen so far is driven in the last 10 years, driven by the Fed. And what we saw this year is driven by the Fed. What's your kind of maybe high level view on whether you think the Fed would pivot very quickly and cut interest rate and start quantitative easing when they see first sign of inflation coming down? And whether you think that would be enough to uh, reverse and actually bring us back to kind of the crazy and froth, frothy environment? Uh, yeah. That's all. Thank you. So, so I'll do the second question first. You know, I'm not a, I'm not a, a, a Fed analyst. So, so all I know is I think that, that Powell made a monster error not not last year in inflation. The monster error he made was in 2018 when the Fed was starting to gradually take away the punch bowl and the S&P went down 20% in the fourth quarter, credit spreads went up, and the Fed completely panicked and 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 let the markets, you know, tell them what to do and, and it immediately began aggressively easing it in 2019. And and you know, GDP, real GDP was 2% in the fourth quarter of 18 and roughly 2% in the first quarter of 19, meaning that the, the real economy never never budged um it was still sort of doing its its two percent thing uh but the fed completely completely supercharged everything um and and so and that has helped get us to where we are today um uh, and and the markets i think are just hoping upon hope that that the, there's a slowdown in inflation and even the economy so the fed can start the easing party again that's the that's the drug that that you know everybody wants and 
Uh, I've also said, like, think about what the government's response was to the pandemic. If we enter a really big recession, don't you think that, that the the concept of deficit spending, which went out the window in the pandemic, you know, would basically Congress would just simply say, well, we'll do whatever it takes. So, uh, you know, I think that is the, the Fed would like nothing more than go back to that. The question will be, if inflation recedes, where does it recede to? And does the Fed then say we're going to go back to a QE environment, which got us into this problem, you know, doing that for too long immediately? Or if inflation goes back down to 2% and 3%, which are the long-term expectations anyway, where should the 10-year be? Should the 10-year be at 75 basis points? Or is this going to be more like the 90s and early 2000s when inflation was running 2%, 3% and we had a 6% 10-year, which is kind of normal? Um, and so, I, you know, to get bond yields way down again, they're not only going to have to ease, but they're going to have to do QE again. And I'm not so sure they're going to do that. I, they, may, they may adjust rates, but I'm not so sure that, that the, the QE regime that we've all gotten used to is uh, is going to continue the way it did uh, post twenty eighteen and and oh, but I could be wrong. Hundred um, percent, on factors on factors. Look, you know, I I did a market neutral quant fund back in the early uh, mid nineties with with a with a group out of New Haven, and and we were advised by two very famous academics. One was a Nobel Prize winner, and and I remember learning all about factor invested back in nineteen ninety six, and and. I, I I learned everything I could because we weren't doing the long side. The the, the 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 quants were looking at our shorts and then coming up with a construct of all kinds of stocks that that they thought from a factor base back then uh, would hedge our shorts. And I remember you know looking at this portfolio and looking how it traded and looking how it traded day to day and week to week and month to month and 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 the kinds of stocks the computers were spitting out. And I remember talking over drinks one night with one of the academics, and I said. You know, if we're solving for price performance, right, we're looking for stocks that are going to do well versus our shorts, and we're trying to pull out the things that do that. At the end of the day, when we boil this all down, aren't we simply looking for price momentum? And I'll never forget this. He looked up from his from his whiskey, and he said, dear boy, you, you just asked the question that no quant wants to answer. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that's still pretty valid, you know, 20, 26 years later, that, that most factor strategies are solving for price performance, therefore are solving for price momentum. And, and, and they're just taking it out of, out of, out of your price momentum and, and looking for the opposite. So I, the other answer I would say to you about factor investing is that if you truly hedge out almost all of the factors – the, the amount of idiosyncratic returns you're going to get is going to be negligible. It might still be positive, but, but an awful lot of, of, of uh, our alpha comes from all, not only the individual name and, and maybe the accounting and, and the fraud at an individual name, but something that might be happening to, uh, to the industry. So I'll give you the final example of, of what I mean. So when we were running this fund, we were running it in 2001. And we had Enron and Dynagy that year, which, of course, as you know, basically both went to zero. And I think we, we had 5% in Enron, 4% in Dynagy, something like that. We ended up making no money 
on that that part of our portfolio in the hedged uh, uh, quant fund because the computer had helpfully spit out, uh, you know, all the other energy merchant banks, which went down 90 percent. And, you know, what what the factor model didn't figure in was that the accounting that Enron used was the same accounting that all the rest oh, of them. Oh, no. Sempra, Sempra and all the rest. And so, you know, the factor model didn't pa- figure that out. And and so the industry alpha was what got us that return. And once Enron went, they all went. And and yet in that, in that factor model uh, portfolio, we made no money. And so I, I've, because of these experiences, I've had a long skeptical history on factor factor based hedging, uh, because I found that using the indices and we look, if we're short a couple of regional banks, we might be short the, the, the regional bank ETF instead of the S&P against them. We certainly will do stuff like that. But taking out extensive factor analysis on our 50 shorts and then coming up with a polyglot of longs. I think uh, our experience has been uh, takes away actually a lot of the idiosyncratic alpha. Uh, uh, Cantor, that's T-ball time for you. Cantor, uh, just a quick question: a Did you, do, when when you guys do sector investing, do you uh, try to neutralize sector exposures or do it sector neutral? To you know, we don't do it anymore. That's what I'm saying. Did. We we barely. When you did. Yeah, we, yeah, we 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 did adjust for some of that, but particularly after the Enron episode. But by that time, uh, we, we had realized that, that hedging our portfolio was done almost just as efficiently and returns were better when we did it with broad, broad indices and not, not specific uh, industry exposure. When we get a really disproportionate industry exposure, like when we were short China in our global short fund, China at one point in the early, early 2010s was like 25% of our portfolio. You know, then we had to go look at the FXI and things like that. But 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 broadly speaking, for most of our uh, since we have a pretty eclectic portfolio across a lot of in different industries, um, you know, doing it doing it on a, on a on a stock basis, a factor basis for individual stocks, we found was not worth it. Thanks for that. All right. Three questions and we're done. We're going to do Hedge Reaper, uh, Uncia Capital Management and then Newton. And that's going to be it. So Hedge Reaper, the floor is yours. Please keep it tight. Question for Jim. Well, it's really for you, George. I just wanted to say a couple of things. Um, uh, I was listening in on your, your I don't know what meeting ago was, it the Nautilus or something? You were upset that day. And you said something that has never left my mind. I thought about it every single day since you said it. The moment you said retail bought $1 trillion and have only sold $40 billion, you know how exciting that sounded when you said that because I, I take your word for a lot okay you, I, I respect you but when you said that George when you said that that moment you said that you made four plus million apes happy as shit I just wanted to thank you from the bottom of my heart um, to the ape community out there keep holding every hedge fund in these so called meme stocks are going to fall Okay, so so Hedry, do you have a question for Jim? Because we're trying to wrap up the room, Hedge. I just wanted to say that, George. Thank okay. you so much. Thanks, th- thanks for coming. I appreciate that. Thanks for thanks. All right, let, let, let's go to Uncia and then Newton, and then we'll be done. Uncia, what's up? Great, thank you so much for hosting the call as well, uh, Jim. Just a really quick question, and uh, the, the question is really just what would in the environment um, make you 
uh, bullish, like what signals would you look for? And the reason I ask is back in uh, the fund I was working at back in the middle, uh, early 09, uh, we had a dedicated short seller. He had made a lot of money, as you can imagine, for the past, for the prior, like, 18 months. And his best short idea two weeks before the low uh, was Berkshire Hathaway. Uh, to me, that was a bit of a contra signal. Yeah. Um, so it, it, there's always a time to get bullish. Yeah. I'm not saying we're close, but I'm curious, given your experience, you know, many, many decades of experience, what would get you to kind of pause and be like, this has gone too far or I'm getting a little bit bullish. Thank you again for your time. Yeah. So, um, so we actually, so, so again, I, 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 the two main funds besides our little tail risk thing we're running lately, uh, we, the short, short only will always be net short. It will vary. However, the hedge fund also exposures vary. Um, and, and the way we vary exposure in both of them is we actually have something proprietary that actually goes back, oh my God, 36 years. And we found that, that our short alpha is, uh, is a really, really reasonable, you know, kind of a, a bigger picture, uh, um, exposure tool, meaning that, that, uh, when our alpha starts to expand relative to the market, it's generally a time to reduce exposures, the net exposures, or increase the short exposure, and vice versa. When we suddenly start struggling in terms of alpha generation, uh, and that would have been, by the way, the first quarter of '09 was was exactly that. Uh, we the market kept going down, and we stopped making money on the short side. Uh, that's usually a time to reduce exposures on the short side and increase your nets in the hedge fund. And uh, so, and I'll just give you the, the last big signal was uh, was last fall. So after the, even though uh, Helene and I agree that the, the market speculatively made a top in the first half, um, when it went back up to a new high in October, November, uh, and our stuff was breaking down, uh, we actually started to get more short then. That was one of our, our last big signal turns in our, our, our proprietary internal stuff. And it's, it's not perfect, right? It's just, it's a matter of degrees. Um, but, but it just basically said, okay, we can, we can take a little bit more risk on the short side now. Um, and, and, and watch our nets and bring our nets from slightly net positive to, 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 uh, slightly net negative. We're, we're back at around zero right now, but, but I mean, anyway, I'm just saying that, that that's just one thing that that's pursuant to our history that has been a pretty good indicator over, you know, almost 40 years that when stuff starts working on the short side, something's changing in the market. And, and, and it just intuitively makes sense, right? Like, for example, energy that, that Helene was talking about. Uh, we only have uh, two energy shorts. Um, both, we just think, are, are kind of really garbagey E&P companies we know pretty well. And uh, they are... They, basically are back to where they were now when oil was at 90 bucks. Um, and, and even though it, the oil is still quite a bit higher, uh, those stocks have underperformed the commodity dramatically and have begun to actually show alpha. And that would be a sign that we probably should be increasing our alpha exposure, um, are increasing our energy exposure. And, and so we look at that kind of stuff. And, and, and because we have a database going back 36 years, on our alpha and in the same idiot running the portfolio, um, you know, there, there's something, if we can glean something from that data, we try to. Um, and so it's still, it's still overall, it's pretty, it's flashing, you know, the light red, it was flashing dark red in the fall.
the gym. We got last speak, last question. Afro Energy. I think I really enjoy him. We've got the guy right next to you is uh, Javier. He's, he's a regular in these rooms. He's probably he's one of the smartest energy investors around, and he's actually in the in the business itself. So I think you'll you might want to ask him a question or two because he's been very pressing in his call. So Javier, good to see you. Um, what's on your mind? I'm, I'm glad you've, you've been able to come into the room today. What's going on in the energy world, Javier? Hey, 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 George. Hey, Jim. Um, everybody, I, I, I want to start it off with with, with just the kudos. Um, you know, George, uh, the speakers that you have are th these are people. You know, Jim. This is a professional's conversation, and this is a conversation that people pay thousands of dollars for conference tickets to go and sit in and listen to people talk. These are conversations that take place in steakhouses, and the average investor never hears this. The average investor, the average person who doesn't invest, the average person whose entire investment strategy is a pension or a company-matched 401k or um, a, a penny stock here or there. The average person never hears this. So I just want to give you kudos, George. Jim, I really appreciate you and the other speakers today coming up. Um, it, really is, it really is a breath of fresh air that the average person gets to hear this. These are things we talk about in circles every day, all day. And that you're putting it out here is a true testament, George, to, um, uh, you know, to, to, to free speech and free access to information. That's it. So, so Jim, sort of to wrap this up, um, because I'm fascinated today and I have lots of opinions. I've made lots of calls, a lot of them good, a lot of them bad, whatever. But on the note that, that the average person is listening to the 1,000, 1,500, 2,000 people that are sitting here listening, you said it best when you said retail was introduced to the stock market in 2019. Retail and, and, and also the vast majority of money managers did not, they were not deploying capital in 07, 08, and 09. They're, you know, if you're 37 yeah. years old, you were in grad school. Yep. What would be your number one basic, simple piece of advice? George likes to say, know what you own. I like to tell people know when to get divorced. Um, <laughs> I, I, you know, there's, there's, everybody has sort of this thing that you tell somebody who's looking from the outside in. Where would you go for information? Where would you go to brush up on it? What's your number one piece of advice to an amateur guy or a dropout like me? Oh, boy. I mean, I, I mean, I, it just, I, I guess the one thing, both on the short and long side, I've seen people get carried out on, you know, both, both amateurs and professionals, is, is not understanding leverage and not understanding risks to leverage and, and the way it works. And, and, you know, correlation. We talked a little bit about structuring portfolios in the last couple of questions, but but also understanding that that if you are if you are levered, and and by the way, you can be you can be ninety percent invested and not understand that you're levered, right? I think you know the people, the Tiger Cubs have kind of found that out again the hard way this year. Uh, you know, if you've got stocks with all with a betas of two going to betas of three, you know, you're really three hundred percent invested. Uh, and I, and I think that, that nothing, nothing, you know, uh, uh, will kill portfolios and, and kill your, you know, kill your career, whatever, faster than, than not understanding levered bets, both, uh, you know, explicit and implicit in the markets, because they force they also force you to do things at the wrong time. Right. And that, that's one of the things that, that the derivative structure that we talked about earlier really helped us in 2021 um, by by being able to structure trades through put spreads or, or whatever, we were able to add to positions as they went up, as, as opposed to maybe in 2000, where we would have had to cover positions. I, I, I sadly remember Valiant, which we were short in 20, you know, from 2013 on, and being forced to cover stock at 180 and 190 on its way to 260, 
because it was already too big. And then we had to have the discipline to actually add to it on the way back down, which is really tough, by the way, even for a professional. And, and, and so being able to take advantage, particularly in exponentially moving markets of structure, um, to, to, to limit your leverage so that you can add to positions when it's even more favorable um, really is something that I think investors and, and traders should learn to, to take advantage of. But, but hidden leverage, hidden leverage, you know, will kill even the best of investors because the stuff you think can't happen every 20 to 40 years will happen. And you're going to have to deal with it and you're going to have to deal with the career risk that, that comes with that. And, and I think that, that, that um, it, it's one thing that sadly for most investors, they learn it the hard way. Thanks, Jim. Hey, Ivy, can you just give us a couple of minutes on energy? Because I know, I know I'd be very th- thankful, and, I, and I, I'm pretty sure Jim would be pretty used to what you got to say. You had a great call a few weeks ago. You are saying be a little bit more cautious on what you saw coming down the pike. What are your updated views on energy markets right now? What's top of mind for you, Javier? Hey, hey George. Um, well, I've caught a lot of heat for that. Um, you know, I, I, I feel the same way about energy right now as I do about crypto and Bitcoin a year ago. And when the when when you know I made a comment two weeks ago about an uh, a Canadian producer who was trading at sixteen cents eighteen months ago who was trading seven dollars, and their CEO went publicly stating that they do not believe in hedges, that they think they're too expensive, <laughs> and they believe that 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 it that they didn't even have a facility to do it. I listened to it. I made a public comment and said, "Wow, that makes me want to short small Canadian EMPs." And the rage that I heard. The rage, the people that were literally DMing me and telling me, good luck. This is this is horrific. Why would you say something like this? You're trashing my industry. Well, I'm in the industry. So when I hear things like that, I start, my, my antennas go up. And George, you said it earlier, there's, there's an old narrative in trading. When something should go up, when the chart says it should go up, when every fundamental says it should go up, and it doesn't go up, it ain't going up. And you don't know where it's going lower. You don't know how much lower. You don't know how fast, how, how you know. These things happen when you have a position on. So I have no energy longs um, other than some passive stuff that I don't touch that is managed by a very, very, very good, good person. Um, I have been very cautious with energy. Charts and commodities have been rolling over. George, I actually, I actually sent you a Bloomberg the other day of the managed money long short. So you've got managed money long short and commodity indexes. That has rolled over. It actually formed a very beautiful chart called the Batman Formation. Um, and, and so you're starting to see a pullback. You've seen rollovers in a little bit of copper, a little bit of steel. Lumber's done a 50% retracement. It's only up basically 100% over its, its lows in 2020. So lumber's made a move. Uh, the fertilizer stocks, obviously, most of the case with fertilizer, though, is because it is, it's seasonal. It's, and so it's in the ground, right? You, we've already got, you know, corn's in the ground, beans are in the ground. A lot of the fertilizer's been used. A lot of these guys, there's a cyclical case. They're going to have to go build inventory. And, they're, and in, in the case with fertilizer stocks and fertilizer prices, the way that those indexes price fertilizer at the ports changes. So I, I'm not as bearish fertilizer stocks here as I am oil stocks. George, you and I talked about this at length in March. And I said that I believe a resource inflationary environment, which is resource inflation, which is a supply driven event, which is what we have. We have supply constraints on refining capacity for basically two products that can create a divergence in the physical price of the commodity and the futures price of the commodity versus the underlying performance of the equities. And we're seeing it. You're seeing elevated prices in physical. You're seeing elevated prices in diesel and gasoline, but you're seeing you know, the stocks have had, you know, moderately a blow off the top of it. What was Exxon? 105. 
it's trading what 95 it's off 10 it's off 10 percent those things are going to continue to happen because when you throw the baby out the bat with the bath water it all goes you're going to see you know these guys are going to be picking winners taking winners off to support buying dips you're going to see a transition from energy back into these art deals i believe that's sort of the macro view you might see a punch up tommy said it earlier he sees that he sees a, a great case technically with the mark signals of a rally in the nasdaq or the Qs or the or euro 600s that might be there but um, I, I also think that the pressure to do that is going to continue to compress energy. That's it. That's my current thought. I'm not really changing any of my views. By the way, George, my December 23rd, short of the NASDAQ, I covered 90% of it yesterday. So oh, wow. Um, wow. I'm, I'm, going, I'm going to be cautious. I will, but, but, you know, I'm a trader, not an investor. Um, I could wow. add 100% of it. I could add 100% of it tomorrow night in the overnights. So 100%. That's Thanks, All right. Yep. And the ultimate last question, a little bit. The senior state, well, I was a senior guy. One of the senior ranking members of this room, one of my favorites, Gnostic. I'm saving it for you. Close the room. What's your question, Gnostic? You got a question for Jim? Oh, God. Well, I had a question for Jim, but after listening to Javier, Javier, I saw your call. It caused me to back away from some commitments I had. I had some some people actually chew me out because we, we did the commitments, and I said, no, I'm, I'm not willing to go there at the moment. Because uh, I think there's going to be something wrong, and it saved my ass. Uh, so thank you. Um, the other side of it is, I really wish I'd known you got got DM to death because that's one of the signals over time uh, that I've noticed. Whenever I make a call and I I think it's going to go someplace, and somebody just dumps on me, like, and we're not talking professional traders or something. We're talking, you know, basically retail or semi semi uh, professional traders who dump on you. I look at that as being, oh my God, I got to be right, and I start digging even deeper at that point to see, you know, what's, what's, what's the display here? Because that says there's a bunch of tension building, and and people are actually in trouble, and they're they're in self denial. So Javier, thank you very much. Uh, next time you get DM to death, just I, th I think you should make that part of the conversation because I find it a, an interesting indicator. Um, George Diogenes, my question basically is this: I have three choices buy, sell, or go to cash, or do nothing. Uh, in this market, for the people that are here listening, uh, as just a massively generalized thing, that, that basically says, are we going up, down, sideways? What direction do you think we're going to go? Should I you know, head under the sheets and just you know, take a vacation somewhere? Uh, or should I be actively looking and doing something at the moment? Or should I just sit back and do nothing? Well, I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna punt that to George because I, I I don't give that kind of generalized advice and, and I, I say again at, at least if you're running more risk uh, than usual or you are more exposed to equity risk generally than maybe you you normally are or were five years ago, I would say it it, it my advice to you not knowing you would be to say just sell down to levels that that are more commensurate with think things longer term comfortable with um you know risks are still elevated broadly speaking in almost all asset classes and 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 that's that's the bull market in everything we've had in the past 12 years and so uh, you know it, it it if you have a lot of chips and you've made a lot of chips you know take some of the chips off the table keep some of them on but but uh I would never argue to go all the cash. That's not my style. But on the other hand, if you've been fortunate and, and you've made a lot of money in the capital markets, um, it, it can't at this point hurt you to take some of that off the table. 
I would take Jim's comments and uh, endorse them in spades. Uh, I would take it one step further. I want to go back to something Helene said about there are no bases. I do look at charts. I, uh, I have a sort of tripolar view of the world. You know, a stock picker, yes, but I am macro aware. I do look at charts. As Helene was saying, there are no bases. So I don't think you're going to miss anything uh, if you're in cash. Uh, what you may miss, most likely, is another big leg down. So uh, sell is not a four-letter word. I, ju I just observe in my travels how almost universally individual investors are really uh, not that concerned yet. Or if they are concerned, they've, you know, watch what they do, not what they say. Um, I don't think this market's going to bottom until you've seen a lot of those folks puking. We're just barely in the awakening phase, in my view. Jim, uh, if I can digress for one second, use can't leave. I just want to note for everybody, since Jim started talking, Bitcoin has taken another leg down. Uh, we're down another, Jim, Jim, 3% in the last hour. So annualize that, my friend. <laughs> use, use, use can't leave. Yeah, it's a, it's a predatory junkyard, as they keep saying. <laughs> I, I mean, the, 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 the whole crypto space has been really designed to to extract fees from from you know the unsuspecting and and i it's it just it bothers me i, I caught part of uh, you know the, the the early speakers who were discussing the regulatory framework and and washington's hands off and you're dead right george this has been one of the greatest regulatory failures of global regulators regulators because for whatever you might argue about the technology and, and stifling innovation the, literally, the the, the storyline is fraud in this space. People are getting ripped off and rug pulled and accounts frozen left, right and center. And and that is that has externality costs well beyond the, the value of the two trillion, one or two trillion that are in crypto. The fact that you've got a whole group of new and young investors being introduced to the capital markets. And I use that in quotation marks by having, you know, the, themselves defrauded is really a bad thing for society and, and i think that that part it doesn't get the attention it should yeah, jim jim 100 you know one of the bigger it's not an actual observation nor is it the last one you made but you and i've been around long enough to remember we came in this business you know early 80s there was a whole generation of investors who got blown up in the early 70s didn't come back for a long time. Yep. And then we blew them up again in 2000. We blew them up again in 2008. And now the boomers are all aging. I mean, in this is the everything bubble. You're going to chase away investors for God knows how long. I actually think it's one question. I'm going to ask the last question. Um, let's go on to Chase. Chase Coleman. Um, not sitting on not, 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 not Morgan Chase. I actually think I want you to look ahead to time. This is not an investable idea, but. The history of all bubbles, and, and, and my hat's off to you. I mean, you teach that great course at Yale. No one's a better historian of financial markets than yourself. I look ahead, and I look in the wake of all bubbles, whether it's, you know, Japan or it's NASDAQ 5000 or go, you know, you, you teach all the classes. Charles Kinderberger, please call your office. I think what people don't get or haven't thought about, it, it's happening so quickly, <clears throat> is that this whole we, we spoke earlier about an hour ago about this whole sort of Rube Goldbergian perpetual money machine type of market. Yep. We are never again in our lifetimes going to see anything approaching this sort of Chase Coleman um, fantasy narrative. In part because we're never going to see such reckless monetary policy as, as we witnessed. And I think if you're Calpers, <clears throat> just an example, I'll have to pick on them. And you've got four hundred million or eight hundred million, whatever the number is, with Tiger, like. 
I, it's, it's a sort of Hippocratic oath in your doctor. You know, the first thing is do no harm. It's like the one thing we're not going to do is do that again. We'll do something else, but we're not going to do that again. And so <clears throat> I think I think people like Chase Coleman and Kathy Wood and their ilk, they're going to be relegated to the dustbin in history. I mean, there's going to be in the new, new, in the new updated version of Kindleberger, there's going to be, be another chapter. So, so, Jim, give me a little historical perspective. Like, A, do you agree with that? And B, how does this compare to sort of past excesses that, 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 that you have looked at throughout history? Yeah, so, so <laughs> one, of the, the, one of the themes of the course, and it's a history of financial market fraud, not market history. So I'll, I, will, I will tighten up the narrative a little bit. But, but the fraud cycles follow the biggest you know, financial cycles with a lag. And one of the, one of the themes is what, you know, what comes out of it, right? And, and, and uh, often you get revulsion by the public. And sometimes you don't, by the way. Um, interestingly, uh, uh, in, many, in many busts, you know, the public kind of shrugs. Uh, but the deeper the public's involvement, uh, all of the 1920s, um, or, or the dot-com era, the more, the more it resonates. And, and I think that what worries me a little bit coming out of this, everything bubble, is you know, how people are going to look at capitalism, how people are going to look for state intervention. Uh, you, know, you already have it a little bit with the apes, not, not to pick on a previous caller, but there's this perception that you know, Wall Street is keeping them from making money. I mean, this insane narrative that, that Wall Street is somehow you know, uh, uh, making me lose money when I buy these garbage stocks. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's already starting. And, and I think that, that that's the part that the, the policymakers always flub. They always, they, they always realize it too late when their constituents are calling them up, telling them, you got to do something about this. Uh, we're nowhere near that level yet. And, and I think that, that, that that's ahead of us. And when the historians look back at it, they'll they'll point to all the things that you pointed to, plus a lot of other stuff that we know will come out that we don't even know about right now. Um, and 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 you know, as usual, the prescriptions will be the wrong prescriptions because they'll they'll stop what happened in this cycle and and you know and not be attuned to what's going to happen in the next cycle. You know, we're not having any problem in mortgage-backed securities or leverage balance sheets of banks and investment banks in this cycle. Why? Because that was the last problem. And we regulated that out of existence. And, and Jim, so, Jim one, one final footnote question on that, if I can add. I, I don't want to get into names because I've gotten a couple of dust-ups recently with people, so let's keep it at a higher level. So I'll just, I'll just make, make one name because she's so public, Kathy Wood. All right, You're old enough to remember when, as the saying goes. And I was at, I was at the Morgan Stanley uh, Life or Key thing with you, you know, Alberto Villar. May he rest in peace. He, uh-huh. he was behind bars before he went six feet under. But whether it's Kevin Landis or Tom Marsico or Ryan Jacob or you know, just go down the list, Kathy Wood is is, is the female modern day version of that. And so, Jim, whether it's Kathy Wood and she's a registered investment advisor, like frankly, I don't know how. I mean, what she's done, if not illegal, it's certainly unethical. I mean, I can't imagine you or anyone with half a brain that's worked at a real firm would go out and say, gee, I think my portfolio is going to compound at 50 or 60 percent a year for the next five years. But you have her and a whole bunch of social media, uh, social media people, many of the leading crypto proponents. Um, yeah. and, and, and I got in a dust up. It's very public on my Twitter feed. I got in a big dust up with one of them last week. And, you know. He said he tries to come off as sounding very erudite. They write one one paper after another, read my book, you know, watch my webinar, whatever. 
But then when you ask a simple question like, well, you know, explain to me, you know, what a Bitcoin is worth, pretend I'm a small child or golden retriever, it's like crickets. I'll do everything except to answer that question. So my question to you is, there's a question here in this speech. I'm trying to just give context of the question. There's so much stuff which is either, if not illegal, and if it's not illegal, it's speaking to the inadequacy of our laws and the laws haven't kept up the technology, or highly unethical. I mean, how do you see the, the sort of the, ab- the, the sort of um, uh, abdication of moral responsibility, culpability, yeah, uh, and the ability to say this crap without any be, be held down? Like it just makes my blood boil, and it's pouring gasoline on the fire that you're talking about. What's what's your overall take on on the fact we there's there's, there's no listen. Wall Street's never been never been for Boy Scouts. We know that. But the level, and, and everyone Benny's about this legal fraud, let's give credit where it's due. That's from Jim Chaynor. That's from the guy on stage, right? I don't people mention that in this room. But Jim, they've taken it to new levels. And well, so, so what, 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 what's, your, what's your pushback to all this? Well, you know, first of all, when it comes to, to guarantee, you know, not guarantee, but but projecting uh, future returns, if, if if I or any other short seller told told the uh, investors publicly you know give us money because we we will protect you know your portfolio up to 50 percent a year the sec would be at my door the you know 9 a.m on monday morning um so i don't know what what the heck you know i don't that's just that's just something a registered you know uh investment advisor cannot do um and, and so i i i'm i'm amazed at that as well as other things um but Look, it, you know, the, every cycle has them, right? And, and in this cycle, it was not only the growth investors, it's, it's the, the whole crypto space, as you've alluded to, where I, you know, I wanted to interject when, when the ladies were talking earlier, uh, is that it's not for nothing that almost all the luminary lights in the crypto industry live offshore, um, you know, and are based in, in Singapore or Korea or, or the Bahamas or whatever. And, and, you know, I was short the online poker stocks that came out of London. I'll never forget this. In 0506, there was a raft of them. And by the way, a number of the executives in that industry are now in the crypto industry. And and uh, I'll never forget that, that there was a disclosure. They were all being floated on the AIM market in London, uh, which was the sort of the wild, wild west of, of the European stock markets. And I was reading the offering document of one of them that we were looking at, and it was describing one of their directors, and and Mr. So and So is blah, you know blah 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 blah, and the last sentence was Mr. So and So is currently a fugitive from justice, and and it just struck me that that so many of the people that that have glommed on to promoting the worst of the worst in this everything bubble, uh, you know, are of the same ilk. They are just out and out promoters who have realized that they can basically sell unregistered securities to the public with almost no disclosure. And, and the fact that the SEC and others have not moved in you know, rapidly to, to prevent this, they did so in the ICOs in 2017, but have not done it recently, you know, gets back to, to things like you know, the SEC and Elon Musk and, and other things. We have... Uh, we have a regulatory and law enforcement framework that has appeared toothless to investors and, and no one thinks that, that they can get in trouble for doing any of this stuff. And I think that feeds upon itself and is fed upon itself in this cycle. And uh, we're going to see how it all plays out. George, I got to go. Jim, Jim, thank you so, so much. This has been a real treat. I hope you'll come back. The room I know really, really appreciates all your, all your, all your good stuff. 
This has been awesome. We've got a great room here. And, and thank you again. Keep fighting the good fight. This has been a fantastic room. Thanks, everybody. We'll see you again next week. Take care. Have a good afternoon. Bye-bye.